What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And if you haven't been rocking a Mystery Ranch Fireline pack for the entirety of your career, well, that sucks. Oh, I can't imagine what your back is feeling like right now or your knees or, you know, the drill. Yeah, that sucks. Shoulders. Ugh. Anyways, they make arguably the most comfortable, the most well-built and the best damn load-bearing essentials in the industry, but not only just for fire, they make it for a ton of other things as well. So if you want to go peel a trophy elk off the side of the hill this winter, well, they make a pack for you. If you want to go backpacking across Europe, they make a pack for you. They make all of the stuff. Hell, they even make these uh, cool briefcases, which I'm looking at right now. Yeah. The reason why I'm mentioning that is because the three-way briefcase and their little day pack called the Assault 21, the three-way briefcase and the Assault 21 packs in Wildfire Black, well, portion of the proceeds from the sales of those packs are going right back to you folks in the field. Yeah. Mystery Ranch has started the Backbone Series Scholarship Program, and yeah, you have a chance to win one of these $1,000 scholarships by submitting a story and telling a story about your wildland fire experience. So for those folks who are going above and beyond for their career and want to uh, get a little bit more, a little bit uh, further in their career, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check out the Backbone series. Yeah, gotta love those guys. Mystery Ranch, why do they do it? Well, it's because they give a shit. Anyways, y'all know the drill. www.mysteryranch.com. Go check them out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor, and that's going to be none other than Hot Shot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. But if you uh, don't happen to be in the mood for some kick-ass coffee, well, they got a ton of other stuff too. What you might ask? Well, they have all of the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right, and they have a metric shit pile of Wildland firefighter themed apparel. So if you're in the uh, in the market for some uh, these tools of the trade, like an arrow press or a pour over system or some sweet merch, well, go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check it out. And while you're at it, go over there and check out the uh, Anger Point podcast section. Yeah, we got some exclusive merch over there. They're hooking us up by uh, supporting our uh, merchandise. So if you want to get a hold of one of those Fire Fiend tees or one of those Band of Brothers tees, well, look no further than www.hotshotbrewing.com. Go over there and check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast would also like to give a quick little shout out to our buddy Booze over at the Ass Movement. And what does that stand for, you might ask? Well, it stands for the Anti-Surface Shitting Movement. It's a cause that I can definitely get behind, but there's your dad joke of the day. And they are serious about stewardship to the land. I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely hate when people go onto our public lands like a, like a trailhead or my favorite fly fishing spot or my favorite chucker hunting place. And just take a big old, big old dump on the side of the trail and just gift wrap it in toilet paper for you or your dog or whoever to find. That shit is disgusting and it needs to stop. So lucky for you, you can spread the good word about burying your turds over at www.thefirewild.com where you can check out the ass movement and get some stickers, some posters, some shirts. They've got it all and it's for a good cause. So Anchor, anchor Point and booze over here. We've kind of teamed up. We've got an exclusive discount code for you and uh, you can save 10% off your entire purchase site-wide by using the code anchorpointass10 at checkout. So if you want the finest in poo-bearing propaganda, go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement. 
And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast would like to give a quick little shout out to our friends over at the American Wildfire Experience. Now, they are not a sponsor of ours, but I do deeply deeply believe in the cause that Bethany has going on over there. Basically what it is, is a catalog, a digital archive of wildland firefighting stories from across the globe. Yeah. Even though the name says American wildfire experience, it is a very much, very much a global affair. And yeah, all these uh, wildland firefighting stories date all the way back to the 1940s, which is pretty cool. It's pretty epic. So if you want to uh, want to uh, get some perspective from your peers in the field and uh, take a trip down memory lane or just see other people's experiences, well, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org. And while you're at it, check out the Smoky Generation. Yes, the AWE is the ones who house the Smoky Generation and that grant program. And it's another another storytelling platform for Wildland Fire. And it is a global affair as well. Just want to give a special shout out to all the 2022 Smoky Generation grant recipients this year. Uh, Yeah, you guys are doing some awesome work and I look forward to seeing what's coming out next. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody is uh, doing well, even though it's very slow. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, Predictive Services was predicting doom and gloom uh, at the beginning of the year, but I guess it's not really panning out quite yet. But there is still plenty of season left, and I think it's going to be one of those very long seasons. We got some stuff popping off in California, the Pacific Northwest, and up in Region One, as you all well know. So, for those of you that are on the line, Stay safe out there. And for those of you uh, sitting in station or on a staging assignment, well, try not to lose your minds. With that, today on the show, we've got a very special guest. We have someone who has pretty much done it all in fire. It's actually pretty incredible. He uh, started off as a firefighter, as a volunteer, then he became a fed and he did some hot shotting time. He did some engines, he did it pretty much all. And then he all of a sudden decided to become a pilot not only just a regular pilot, but a seat pilot nonetheless. And it's pretty incredible. And uh, after that, he uh, decided to go get his air attack quals. Yeah, pretty incredible. He's done a little bit everything from the ground to the sky. And now he's going to pass on some of that information along to you. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my good friend, Mr. Zach Sullivan. Welcome to the Anchor Point. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got my good buddy, Zachary Sullivan, air attack extraordinaire, well, soon to be air attack extraordinaire, pilot, tanker pilot, ground pounder. Dude, you've done it all. Like, like you've got a pretty awesome pedigree as far as like coming up in the world of fire. Like, how the hell did you do all this stuff? 
And throughout the throughout our chat, Brando, I'll I'll definitely touch on a lot of I, I don't know if you call it luck, uh, stars aligning. I, I don't know what you do, but uh, things have just kind of worked out for me, and uh, I kind of just take it as it comes, and it's it's worked out really awesome, man. Oh yeah, man. So tell us about yourself. So man, you know it's uh, my story is definitely not very special. Uh, it's just like the rest of ours, but uh, you know, grew up in a a pretty crummy town in the Midwest, a lot of crime, a lot of drugs, uh, stuff like that. And so in my early teenage years, you know, made some poor decisions and uh, this is where it gets right off into the, the kick of things. You know, I mean, a lot of bad decisions headed down a bad road and, and again, luck stars aligning. I don't know, but something changed, pulled out of it. Early twenties, uh, shot out to Colorado, man, I'm a big snowmobiler and, uh, drove 12 hours from the Midwest to ride. And I was like, yeah, I'm never doing that again. So <laughs> no shit, moved, huh? picked up, yeah, picked up and moved out to Colorado just to snowmobile, you know, and, uh, headed out there and I've always been in construction, you know, uh, uh, running heavy equipment, bulldozers and stuff like that. And, uh, I, you know, went, went to college, put myself through college and then, uh, got into upper management. And so it was pretty easy to move out to Colorado, nothing special there. And, um, shot out there and, uh, I, you know, fell into fire by total accidents. Uh, I've always been worked multiple jobs and not because I'm a hard worker. I think I just must like cash or something. So, uh, are you like punishing I, yourself I live, one of the two got to respect the hustle, but it that? takes work. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I live in, I live in Loveland still. That's where I moved when I first moved out, uh, Loveland, Dude, Colorado. Loveland's, so Loveland's about 45 awesome, miles east. Yeah. Super cool, man. Yeah. Uh, 45 miles east of Estes Park, so the Rocky, the, the road into Rocky Mountain National Parks, so super cool. And driving up the canyon one day and uh, see some some dudes working on a building. They're running a backhoe, and I'm thinking, oh, this will be a way for me to to tie in with some dudes, pick up a weekend job. And uh, they're like, you know, man, we're uh, we're not contractors, we're volunteer firemen, and we're always looking for volunteers. And I'm like, you know, I don't know anything about fire, didn't grow up in it. Uh, I'll just keep on moving. And they, they wouldn't let it go, man. They're like, you know, we're always looking for dudes to, to jump in. And they said, we'll train you. So I started off that way. Pretty uneventful story, you know, but, uh, the majority of those dudes are pretty into like the structure firefighting thing. And they're into EMS and EMTs and, uh, but a large portion of what they did was wildland. And, uh, so that was my first class, you know, and I went to a one thirty one ninety man. And I remember sitting down bro at that table and they give me this binder. And on the front of it's this fire ripping up a ripping up the hillside with a big old column, and I'm like, done. "Oh, this is for me." Here we go, man. I'm, you I'm caught the bug. You're done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, so jam out that class, you know, whatever, and then uh, jump into like a two twelve class, I think. You know, and back, you know, I, this is my 19th season of fire. So back then, man, uh, you take a two twelve class, you get two things: you get a certificate, and you get an A on your red card, and you're like just go out, man. You're good to go. No task books back in the day. And so just enough to be dangerous, but in all seriousness, Brandon, that first season, I, we had nine really solid IAs and, uh, you know, hyped into every one of them, packing the saw, getting the cut, getting in on the dig. And I'm like, yeah, this is it, dude. Uh, I'm hooked. Oh yeah. You know, so, you know, just like you, just like the rest of us, you know, nothing cool there, but, uh, it sparked something. And I thought, man, I got a kind of a decision to make there. I can, I can either keep this awesome lifestyle of a great job, great benefits, great perks, or I can go ahead and be like a GS three 
and uh, just jump live in the that, fire. So you know, live that dirt bag. Jump life. in the fire, man. <laughs> Go yeah. for it. I got yeah. I got to have a firm jump believer in. though, man. Like you said something earlier about uh, you know going down kind of a rougher path. I've got a theory about the best firefighters. The best firefighters are always fuck ups, ranchers, kids, and ski bums. Change my mind. <laughs> Well, I got the fuck up one covered pretty solid, dude. It's, oh, you and me both. By a hope and a prayer, I didn't end up in prison or something. But it's all cool, man. You know, because it made me who I am today. It's like I say, it's not a cool story. It's just mine, you know. So yeah. Well, no, I, but, I know a ton yeah. of like I know a ton of badass firefighters, like people that are high echelon up in the uh, government services and uh, in the fire services, like Forest Service or Bureau Land Management or whatever, any federal wildland fire service that have been through the uh, prison system. And fuck, man, they just kill it every day, man. Like Mondo, Booker, a couple other folks that I'm not going to name, but yeah, they are some true believers and hitters, man. And they fire change their lives for the better. Yeah. Yeah, totally tracking with you, man. And uh, I often say, unfortunately, I think cash saved mine. I was just like, I was like, I'll just get a job and <laughs> make money. And that, I think that just solved all the problems. It's like, well, whatever, man. I, I wish it was cooler. You know, I wish I had some cool story like I was pulled out of it, but it just, it worked itself out, which is, which is awesome, you know. But, you know, so, uh, you know, like I talk about whenever new opportunities come up, you know, whatever comes of it's, it's a decision time, you know, and, and I made the decision to jump in the fire. So, you know, we went kind of local, uh, our sheriff's offices in Colorado have, some of them have really robust fire programs. So I jumped on with Larimer County where I was from, I uh, spent the first season there, got just killer experience, killer training, uh, jumped over to the BLM over in Craig on the Western slope, got to experience, you know, the crew lifestyle, the engine lifestyle, the type two IA crews, even, um, you know, so we got some killer experiences over there, jumped back over to the front range, to the Arapaho, and then uh, continued on with, with Larimer County even a little bit. And so, you know, and for those of you that remember, you know, the mid-2000s, dude, perms were hard to come by. I mean, unless you wanted to be in like fucking Winnemucca. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. pump the brakes. Yeah, I got a little special spot. It's a special <laughs> place in my heart for Battle Mountain and the muck. <laughs> Dude, you can keep it, bro. That's cool. Uh, Shout out to my homies in the muck. Than me that yeah, but so, you know, I mean, perms were hard to come by. So again, oh, yeah. you know, get, got some killer experience and with that opportunity comes a decision. So uh, decided... You know, I'm not going to get a perm probably. And, and Craig, I got offered a, a spot to go detail in as an assistant on the engine with an awesome dude. It would have been a great boss. And, and he told me straight up, man, he's like, dude, your chances of getting a perm here is going to be tough. And it's going to be a while because a lot of those Craig engine guys are born and bred there, went in out of high school and uh, are super solid dudes. And Craig is where I wanted to be, man. I loved every minute of my time there. I was always told it was the second busiest IA district in the nation. I'm sure there's plenty of dudes that'll punch holes in that. I don't know. It was a busy fucking firefight though. Uh, yeah. I mean, desert firefighting is what it is, but it was busy. So that's where I wanted to be, you know, and, and the, the individual I would have worked for, he since passed, you know, he died in a failing accident a year later. Or so and I'm sorry. He was, that, man. I, I mean, I mean, a lot of us probably listen to know him, but he was like, dude, it's, it's just not gonna, it's going to be a while. So, you know, again, that opportunity, I made the decision to go with a, a structure department, 
uh, back in Loveland. I, I chose them. They had, a, I knew a lot of the dudes there had worked with them over the years on a various wildland assignments, shit like that. And they had a, a really robust wildland program. So I was like, cool, man, I'll do this benefits, all that good stuff, all the stuff grownups are supposed to do. Right. So, uh, jumped over there, you know, had a great lifestyle, uh, loved it. Uh, did a lot of different roles, started getting into the single resource thing, learned real quick. I, I would never, ever want to do engines, uh, as far as cooperator engines. And, uh, to this day fought tooth and nail till about like three years ago to get an engine boss qual and I'll never use it. So, uh, <laughs> okay. yeah. Anyway, the whole thing about that's, engines, that's another dude. story. Whole thing about engines though, I think they're like really underrated actually, because it's either like really good or like really bad. There's really no in between with engines. It's not like you just get like a, a mediocre engine. Like I don't know, man. I don't know yeah. what it is about that. Dude, you know, going out as like a division, task force, whatever. I mean, dude, I, I love the engines. I even have my own little ranking system on how it played out. I'm all for it. It's just it was not the lifestyle for me. I mean, you know prepping some houses, hanging out, just milking the clock. I was like, this, yeah, that's, that's not for me. I think I only did a couple rolls and was like, uh, we'll do some other stuff, you know, I'm some good. or some heavy equipment in Boston or something, you know? So, yeah, but you know, anyway, man, keep it on, uh, you know, again, the opportunity, uh, the opportunities kept popping up and I don't know, this is a crazy little deal, but I decided to become a paramedic for, I, typical Zach fashion. And you'll hear more of this, but I was like, Hey, I'm just going to become a paramedic. So I went to paramedic school, became a paramedic, but with those opportunities, again, come decisions, decided to jump over to another structure department. And uh, this is, I think where the kind of the story gets a little more interesting, but jumped over there, had a brand new wildland program. Literally, I don't even think it was two years old, but they wanted to build it up. So I was kind of a big fish in a small pond, you know, as opposed to being in Loveland where I was, you know, the opposite of that. So yeah. shot over to, over to that department, was able to help build that program up. Um, so, you know, built a, a awesome burn program. So again, a, a municipal department in Colorado, we were only, you know, we weren't breaking records, Brandon, but we were doing six, 800 acres a year, which again, municipal department in Colorado, we've got a lot of weird air restrictions. So I was proud of that. You Built a, a like seasonal NEPA mitigation crew that I got to run. You got like a lot What's of that, NEPA, like a lot of NEPA uh, stuff going on over there, dude. Out of control, man. Yeah, out of control. And being a cooperator, or a, yeah, there's a whole lot that we could have in this conversation, but just a lot of restraints from from the state. And I'm sure it's all valid, and and that's cool. It just hurdle after hurdle, bro. So, you know. Again, what we were able to accomplish, some good solid burns, building up some good experience. I mean, I have seven, eight different cooperators out there on each burn. So just helping build up a lot of programs outside of ours. Super stoked about that. Built a, a cool, awesome mitigation program. So had some seasonals that work for me. And then, you know, getting a flow all summer, man. Getting to go out as much as I'd like. And then in the winter turn around and jump on a, on a structure engine and be a firefighter paramedic. Go peel people and, off the hill. Uh, <laughs> what's oh, that? Look, you got go, go peel uh, people off the hill from like ski injuries and shit like that. No, you know, this is uh no, it was, it was a similar town and that I grew up in really rough, a lot of crime, a lot of drugs, substance abuse, mental health, man. And yeah. so again, for a guy that likes to just keep grinding, you know, get to fight fire all summer and then get to, 
to have the action of that stuff in the winter was, was cool. But I, one of the story, one of the stories I tell dudes is <laughs> you can wrap your head around what this is like is so I'm in Northern North ops on a roll. I come home days off, jump on a city engine and we get called out in the middle of the night for a domestic or something. I, I don't even remember what Ooh, the sketchiest, the only the sketchiest of situations will suffice for oh, this yeah. one. <laughs> oh yeah. We roll up, the cops clear us in. They're like, yeah, come on in. And, and they're still wrestling this dude to the other ground to the ground. I think the dude he was fighting with must've either been in custody or something. I don't know, but this dude's still tussling. Definitely some different substances were, were on hand, I'm sure, before we get there. And uh, so oh, we, shit. we get him buttoned up and uh, get him in the ambulance. And he's kind of calmed down. And this dude is, is massive. And he's got a completely shaved head. His sweatshirt's got a humongous swat stick on it. Oh, Jesus. And he's yelling in German. Yeah, he's yelling in German. And, bro, he's not German. This is how dedicated this guy is to his lifestyle. Get him in the back and give him the whole spiel like, hey, man, you know, I'm, I'm just here to help you, not here to jam you up. I have an officer in there with me. And so, again, I know we're supposed to be talking about wildfire, but <laughs> I promise we'll, we'll come full circle with this. But I tell him, you know, hey, you know, and when we've got a trauma patient, we try to expose them as much as possible, looking for stab wounds, gunshots, contusions, all that. So oh, yeah. I say, That's hey, man, I got to cut your sweatshirt off. I got to cut your sweatshirt off. and. uh Please tell me you did it right down the middle of the swastika. It'd be like, fuck you. (laughs) I was, I was ready, man. And had the trauma shears and I just gave him a heads up and this dude stops, stares me right in the eye. And he's like, if you cut this sweatshirt, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to kill you and your whole fucking family. Jesus. And as, yeah. So I look at the cop and I'm like, you know, what do you think, man? You going to do something here? And the cop looks right at me and he's like, fire you. I wouldn't cut that sweatshirt. (laughs) It's like, Okay. So this dude so is like super dangerous. Yeah, just, but, you know, so one day, two days, three days before that, I'm on a fire doing what I love with the bros, super happy outside, loving life. A couple days later, here I am in the ghetto grinding it out with a white supremacist who's beat the shit out of how many people and he's threatening to come to my house and kill me. And dude, that, that takes a toll on a guy. Um, you know, it's, and it's, it's hard to explain, but it, it was tough, man. Like that back and forth on the worst of the worst substance abuse, mental health to just an awesome lifestyle. What I call, you know, is what we call wildfire. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it just was always a struggle for me mentally sorting all those out. Oh, I you know, feel I, you, I'm sure I'm not making all. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, dude. I mean, it's like, well, pick your path, right. Either unhinged drug addicts, white supremacist or <laughs> being out in the woods with a bunch of your bros and making dick and fart jokes and digging holes in the dirt. I mean, that, that sound, the, the latter definitely sounds a lot better to me personally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Dude, I did, but you know, yeah. Gotta pay the mortgage, right? Oh, I so. feel you, man. I did a EMS for a while there and uh, yeah, it sucks at times. I mean, one of my calls, my, my first call ever was an SIGSW and if, for people out there and that don't yeah. know what that term is, it's a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Yeah, he dude shot himself in the in the head with a 38 and which is crazy because like you'd be surprised how long someone is clinically, I'm using air quotes here, alive with a gunshot wound to their freaking head. 
And I'm sitting there and like, I just, I wasn't even there for five minutes. I just sat my shit down. They're like code red trauma North code red trauma North. And I like go, the charge nurse looks at me and like, well, you get to go. And I'm like doing my, my clinicals. Right. And she, I just like haul ass down there. I'm like, what the fuck did I just get myself into? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's insane, man. Dude, and, and, and your story, my story, it's, it's not special, right? Everyone across this country, dude, all these guys do the same job. They jump back and forth and they do it much more successful than I ever did, I think. And so again, it's just, you know, just trying to kind of paint the picture, I guess, of, of where I'm headed with all this. But, you know, so you know, life's good, though. The, the whole time through this, it's awesome. But uh, I'm on the treadmill one day and my boss is next to me and I, I'm kind of eavesdropping on his iPad action over there. And he's got all these airplanes flying around. I'm like, yeah, Roger, what do you got going on, man? And it's like, oh, I'm a private pilot and I'm kind of doing some continuing ed. So I rap with him about that. In typical Zach fashion, just like moving to Colorado, like going to paramedic school. Hey, uh, I'm going to become a pilot. You know, Google it, I'm sure. Make a few phone calls and next day's off. I'm handing over a big old check as a deposit and starting my pilot stuff and knock out my private. And dude, Brandon, I get done with it. And I'm like, well, now what? And I had to like beg people to go up and fly with me because it was so boring. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with this now after I dropped, you know, 10 grand on it or whatever it was. And <laughs> it's like a so, 16 year old with a fresh driver's license. It's like, let's go cruise or do something. Yeah. Wait, what do but we not do with this? So like, that. like I just didn't even really know what I was going to do. Like I didn't even, I was, I don't know. It, it is what it is. But uh, so grab the pilot's license and then things kind of start to change. You know, that lifestyle on, on that structure department again was, it was rough, man. It was, it was busy and uh, it takes its toll. And, you know, new, uh, newer listener, first time caller, but I, I've definitely heard some, looked at your lineup of previous guests and, uh, I, you've had some strong pipe hitting dudes on here talking about mental health. So I definitely don't want to act like I, I have anything to offer to that. But, um, you know, my wife sits me down one day and, and real quick, I got to throw this out, but like my wife's a, she's a true pipe hitter too, man. And she hates when I say that but she's a superintendent of a school district. You know, she works 16 hours a day, six days a week. And Sunday she works half that, you know what I mean? So we're both super motivated. We, we just feed off each other and she's super dialed in. So I have a ton of respect for her. So she sits me down and she's like, dude, things are changing, man. I, I can't, you know, you're, you're angrier. You're not sleeping as much. Your sarcasm's not as funny anymore. It's kind of dark. And then for me, Brando, like, she never said this, but all of a sudden I'm noticing the drinking, man. Like we're not talking like having an extra beer with the guys. Like she'd go up to bed the night before work. I'd pour, you know, a couple big glasses of Jameson and saunter upstairs, go to bed, go to work the next day. And, and so she's pointing this out. I'm noticing that things are changing, man. And I'm not the same Zach. So, uh, you know, whatever, uh, tell her, you know, I'll keep an eye on it. And uh, moving on, life's still great, you know, uh, works awesome. She's awesome. We're traveling, whatever. And, you know, so I don't know, nothing special there, I guess. But the big thing, the big change comes, oh, man, I'm, I'm at the airport in Loveland, and there's two seats on a state contract there. Co-Fire Aviation has that contract. And that's, you know, we'll just cut to the chase now. That's who I fly for part-time. And I, I didn't know those dudes back then. And uh, I was putting the airplane away and walk over to talk to the tanker pilot and was like, Hey, you know, I'm in fire. I'm a pilot's, you know, what, 
know, I can probably never accomplish this, but what's the story, man? What's the pipeline? And he breaks it down for me. You know, he's like, you know, you got to have your tailwheel endorsement. Then you got to build a bunch of tailwheel time. Then you need to jump in the ag. And we all get into the ag thing in a bit. But that in itself, dude, is a whole nother battle. He's like, you got to get into ag. So crop spraying, you're yeah. done with that. Maybe if you're lucky and you win the lotto, you can get into a tank. I've seen these crop dusters, man, because they, they, they fly air, air tractors. I mean, it's the same shit, right? Yep. Except for their their dumps are on the wings instead of the belly, basically, of the aircraft. These crazy motherfuckers are flying under power lines to line up their drops. I'm like, what the fuck are these crazy people? I was sitting out there on a fire one time. I was watching an ag a crop duster go. or not, a, not on a fire, but we're staging somewhere, right? Waiting for the call. And uh, I think it was like Southern Idaho. And anyways, I'm watching this dude just do hot laps, crop dusting all these fucking fields and he's flying under power lines. He'll come up, spray, dip down underneath the next set of power lines because it's like a, I don't know, like a 120 acre parcel of, I don't know, corn or potatoes or whatever the fuck grows in Southern Idaho. (laughs) And I'm like looking at this guy. I'm like, this guy has, I don't know how he, how he can get off the goddamn tarmac with balls that big. Like, how do you do that, man? You're flying, you're threading needles constantly. And that's pretty intense. Yeah. It's, it's no joke, man. Every time I climbed in that egg airplane, dude, I was like, well, it's today, today I I don't make it home. Like, seriously, I, I climb in a a tanker and I don't even think twice about it. I don't know. That's the shit that keeps you alive. though. What's that? that? That's the shit that keeps you alive. It's like, well, today's going to might be the day. Yeah. <laughs> I could punch Dude, my ticket today. Every time I climb, if, if I never spray another acre of row crop again, I will die a happy, happy man. It was, it was seriously. And there's guys that do 30, 40, 50 years and love every minute of it. It's a great living. It's a great lifestyle, but uh, it's super, honestly, it's similar to fire. You know, it's a, it's a short window, a lot of money. You know, you got to make it last through the off season. So really similar. It just, for me, it was strictly a stepping stone to get into a tanker that, you know, my boss on the, on the tanker side knew that, um, you know, and I still do some, some seeding and some spraying in the mountains a little bit, but it's, it's not much, man. Very minimal. Yeah. But so, yeah, anyway, so he lays it out to me and, you know, this is, I was kind of thinking about this. I, this is also probably a good point. So if there's folks out there, so that I got a couple of thoughts going through my head, man, I'm all over the place, but I've got like five dudes right now that are in fire. A couple of them are on shot crews. One of them's a Mahelatak guy and they've reached out and they're like, Hey man, I, I want to fly tankers. And so that's what was great about being able to put this together is to, cause you know, here's five guys that have somehow found me. I got to think there's more out there. So I really you know, wanted to use this platform to kind of help answer those questions and and make it easier for some of those dudes so they could maybe help make their own decisions like I did. Cause you know, I, I kind of went into it a little blind, but not really, but fly, so flying by the seat of your pants. There's your dad joke of the day. <laughs> Dude, that's creepy. Super creepy, man. That's no, all good. But so, you know, to be a tanker pilot, uh, I, I, jotted it down, jumped in there and pulled up the the stats for it, you know, so to be a seat pilot. And again, that's the the type of pilot I am. I fly single engine air tankers. Um, I've got some stuff pulled up for, for larger tankers, air attack pilots, some lead plane pilots, if we want to get into that, but you know, obviously my focus is on the seats. And 
So a seat, a single engine air tanker is a, an air tractor 802. Uh, they can carry up to 800 gallons. There's roughly three models out there that we can see on fires. And the big thing that separates them is the motor. Uh, so 1,250 horsepower, 1,325, and then 1,600. The company I fly for has nine tankers. We fly all 1,600 horsepower. And that's a big deal because... You need that us, power, man. You need it. Yep. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter how hot it is, you know, and especially you helicopter guys, you'll definitely get this. But it doesn't matter how hot it is, how high we are, we, we can still carry a full 800 gallons. Um, you start running a 1250 horse or three and a quarter or 13 and a quarter, you're going to have to download, you know, to maybe 700 or 600 or even 500. It just depends. Um, and again, I'm not saying one is really better than the other. It's just, that's kind of, that's the data. That's the facts. Oh yeah. They're well, a that, single pilot. That power really What's matters, that? especially when you're like hot, high and heavy, uh, over here in Nevada, especially like Eastern or central Nevada or the front country of Colorado or any mountainous area, yeah. I mean, you need that power. You have to have it or else you're not going to be able to climb out of something. Yeah, dude, you know, Grand Junction's a great example. When we take off out of Grand Junction on a day like today, you know, it's probably, I guarantee hundred degrees easy over there. And you've got to jump up and over the Mesa. Literally, we can just throw the hammer down and, and climb right over it, where some of the other airplanes will have to circle to gain altitude to hop over. And you think, well, okay, that, that sounds cool. But, you know, if it takes five less minutes, that's, you know, that you add that up over eight hours. And, and that may be two loads of extra mud on that fire, you know, so an extra 1,600 gallons of mud, you know, that that can be a big deal, especially on a, you know, a five acre IA or something. So, oh, yeah, especially in like, desert fires because that's like desert fires are my jam. I love desert, desert fires. Yeah. Like seats don't really do shit in timber. Let's be honest with ourselves. I mean, yeah, you can get like a, I don't know, like the, like the fire bosses, right. Where they can scoop off of a lake or whatever. Those are pretty effective up in the Pacific Northwest to some degree, but dude fires, like, especially like ripping IAs and you're trying to get around it. Seats win the day in the desert. hundred percent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And totally agree with you, Brandon. You're obviously on it. Um, the seats are a single pilot operation, you know, so, so be gentle when you're chatting with them. I'll get into that at the end of this, but, uh, you know, so it's just one dude up there doing it all at, uh, you know, hundred and if he's inbound 180 miles an hour when he's on the fire, you know, 120 or so. So yeah, uh, single pilot. And then uh, the requirements just to jam through these, excuse me, I got to look down at the notes. I think I'd have it memorized, but 1,500 hours of total time. So piloting command, 1,500, 1,500 hours, 25 hours in make and model. So you'd have to have 25 hours in an air tractor 802, 200 hours of low level and a hundred of that low level has to be dispensing something. So there's two ways you can accomplish that. It's either close air support in the military, dropping bombs, you know, on Al Qaeda or whatever it is, or uh, spraying. And that's your only options, man. That you're, you're really, it's it's pretty limited. And then you have to have a commercial rating, instrument rating, and a second class medical. There's some other little tiny things in there. It's it's more pilot talk. And if you've got these things I just named off, that those small things will it all evens out. So uh, that's kind of the broad strokes of the the seat program and what the tankers are and, and what's required to fly one. So let's recap so, that here. So you need your tail, your tail endorsement, right? Tail dragger endorsement. Yep. I guess hours endorsement, I guess would that be, be license. It's, I forget no, it's what an it endorsement, actually. It endorsement? Yeah, super easy. Yeah. So for the private pilot guys out there, it's, it's about literally seven to 10 hours. So 
that ain't couple shit. Three, couple three grand. Yeah. It's not, I mean, your private's what 40 for your private and then your sports only 30 or yeah. 30 for no 25 for your sport. Right. Uh, what do you mean? What are you talking about? So you're like, when you're actually like flying your Cessnas and you're getting your, um, uh, your, your pilot time as far as being able to solo for your private, right. Or actually get your pilot license. So you have your sport endorsement, which is 25 hours or 30 hours. I forget what it was. And then 40 hours of flight time for your private. Right. Yeah. And then it's tail. Go ahead. Keep going. Then it's tail. Then it's your commercial rating. Then it's your low level with dispensing. Yep. And then it's turb. You need a turbine rating too, right? Yeah, turbines. Actually, there is no rating for that. There is no. I, I used to think the same thing. It's. Uh, it's. I mean, some dudes put an endorsement in their book. Some don't. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty vanilla. Pretty gray. Um, one thing I think I. Yeah, and then you need your instrument too. And so instrument. the way I break it down is. It's about 10 grand to get your private pilot's license, give or take, you know, um, instruments, literally about that same amount. By the time you've got those two done, uh, maybe another 50, 80 hours in there of just doing your own thing. Then you got 250 hours to get your commercial and commercial is usually like three to five grand, your tailwheels, two to three grand, you know, and then once you get that done, you know, it's just like that Sawyer with the 212, you know, it's just enough to be dangerous. Um, and then you've got to jump that hurdle, you know, to get from that 250 to 1500 hours. That's a lot of hours. There is. And honestly, you know, we'll get into this more, uh, towards the end, but the, uh, yeah, ag is, you know, ag is generally where you're going to build a lot of that time. Uh, I don't know any seat vendor that's really going to hire you without any ag time unless you've got that close air support. And even then they're a little, we've got a lot of air force dudes, but we, we really, really got them familiar and, and they got a lot of 802 time doing some border patrol stuff in, in Saudi Arabia. So it's, it's tough, man. It, it, and I tell a lot of guys when they come to me about this, I kind of deter them from seats because of that ag time. It's, it's just so tough. There's again, some other avenues we'll get into that are much more attainable that you're still fighting fire. So, uh, yeah, that's the overview overview of the the seat program, I guess, from Zach's perspective. Dude, it'd be so much fun, man. All right. So one of my old, uh, engine operators, one of my old assistants, Chris Byrne, he was telling me like, cause my grandfather was a flight instructor, right? He had his own flight school down here in Reno and all that shit. And, uh, yeah, dude, he was like trying to push me towards that direction. He's like, what are you, you, a freaking idiot, man. Like, what are you doing? Like your, your grandfather is a flight instructor. Why aren't you like going down the path to like get your commercial rating, your private and all that, all that shit. And either a seat pilot or a air attack pilot or some sort of pilot, man. And I just never jumped on it. I was just always like, I don't know. I'm just going to dig holes in the desert (laughs) or the forest (laughs) or whatever. So I kept sticking with fire. I mean, I had like I think I have like, I don't know, 18 hours or something like that in my private, uh, well, book. but unfortunately, you know, back to the, uh, punching your, any day you could punch your ticket as a pilot. Unfortunately, my grandfather passed away doing what he loved, oh, okay. but he did, he was doing what he loved. He was so passionate about fire or not fire, but flying. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I guess he well, punched his ticket, man. So I don't want to talk the whole time about pilot or, you know, flying and stuff. But the one piece of advice I will give anyone that's out there listening, that's thinking they're in the back of the buggy, you know, heading back home right now. And they're thinking, dude, 
I want to do this. This sounds like a cool job. I tell guys straight up, man, when you go to get your private, excuse me, if you don't have the money there, I mean, every bit of it or a loan or however you plan to do it, don't even start it, man, because this world is full of, and I don't mean, you know, your situation's a little different with the, with the grandpa, but yeah, I had a hookup. What's that? I had the hookup. Yep. This world is full of people that get halfway through a quarter of their way through, they solo, whatever it is. And uh, they run out of money and don't complete it. And and all that money up to that point, they've just pissed away and they'll never get anything for it unless they fly. So again, for me, man, I, I had a 0% interest credit card. I went in, handed it to the flight school and said, I do not want to see an invoice. You just put it all on here. I'll pay the bills as they come in. And I did not want to know anything about it because I knew it would just eat my lunch, man, seeing it. No, because they charge you every time you fly. Oh, yeah. 325, 425. I don't want to see this shit, man. You got just hours for your instructor. You've got your fuel. You've got your lease program. You got all that shit, man. It it adds up real quick. Absolutely. Jesus. So again, if you're in the back of the buggy or or whatever your role is, man, uh, and you want to do it, Obviously go for it, but just, you know, talk to some dudes, get a good plan. At the end of this, I'll put out my information. I, I answer these questions literally every day, sometimes numerous times a day. So again, we, we can get into that at the end, but uh, always open to answer questions. So copy that. Well, I will say though, with the infrastructure bill, like uh, the federal folks out there, they're uh, getting their back pay and stuff. And they're probably, that money's probably burning a hole in their pocket. But if they're sure. uh, really interested, that might be a good investment as long as you can sure. sustain it. You know, you're investing in your future. I'm all for that. Just stick with it. Don't piss away that money. Like you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, moving on, man. Uh, you know, so jobs going great, you know, some stressors, whatever, all that good stuff. And, uh, so when I was talking to Brian, the tanker pilot, he was sharing with me his, you know, his, his insight into how to get into this world. He mentioned the owner of co-fire Kyle and, and I need to put this out there right away before we go any further. I meant to do it at the beginning, but you know, I'm going to talk a lot about co-fire and I'm not pushing, you know, like they're the best or anything. It's just, my only experience, you know, yeah, I get to, in this new role, I work with a lot of seat vendors and, and some of them are great. And, you know, some of them aren't as great as the others, but just like hotshot crews, men or type two crews or engines, there's the good and the bad yeah, and the ugly, everything. And, everything and co-fire between. is, I am not endorsing them as being the best, anything like that, you know, definitely follow in suit behind your disclaimer at the beginning of your podcast. So this is just Zach's story and my experiences. So, but back to that, you know, Brian says, Hey, Kyle Scott's the owner of CoFire, super approachable. You know, they're only 70 miles east of here. You got to go talk to him. So I call this, uh, I call this dude up and uh, I said, Hey man, you know, I'm, I'm Zach. I'm in fire. Talk to Brian. I want to see if I could come out and talk to you about fire, about flying the tanker someday, you know, it could probably never accomplish it, but whatever. And this dude's like, well, I'm a little busy. I don't know. Maybe call me in a month or so. I hang up. Yes, dude. Perfect reaction. And I hang up and I'm like, you know what, dude? Fuck this guy. And so again, another little note we're putting out there is Kyle is literally my closest friend. He's a true brother. And, uh, we have, we own cabins next to each other in Wyoming. We're, we're super tight and, uh, you know, spend our winter snowmobiling. So anyway, uh, I feel comfortable getting to talk some shit about him, but he was a dick dude. And, and here's why. Brandon, and it he makes probably gets his doors beaten down every goddamn year about the same shit, dude. Exactly, a hundred percent. I answer literally this question every day. 
and you give the same spiel, the same advice. And Kyle will tell you this, and this is not about Zach. I swear this statement, but he's like, you're the only dude I've seen follow this, you know? And so he's like, it's, it's just, he loves talking and helping guys, but it's gotta be at the right time. So he blows me off and I'm thinking, you know, now, cause I, you know, when I was trying to get on with the, uh, you know, get in the fire, I was taught something and this isn't my line, but either make them hate you or hire you. So I'm like, I'm, I'm bringing this to him. So this story is not a flattering story, but it's mine. So, uh, dude, I'm always getting embarrassed. So I tell a story and he hates it. I'm going to tell this, but so I called the secretary out there, the office administrator. And I, I made up this name because I've always felt in person is much better than over the phone. Oh, hundred percent, dude. hundred percent. I call this company up and I make them make up some name. And I said, you yeah, know, Hey, I'm, I'm so-and-so I'm, uh, I'd like to bring some kids out and show them the airport and the airplanes and all this and that. And she's like, Oh yeah, that's great. You know, we totally support it. When would you like to come? I was like, well, I was told I should talk to Kyle about it. She's like, yeah, yeah. He's the owner. I said, okay. And I said, well, I was thinking about making a heading out there tomorrow. Is, is he around? Can I talk to him? Oh yeah. Look at his schedule. It's, <laughs> it's open tomorrow. Yeah. He should be around. So I hop in an airplane, uh, head out to Fort Morgan where they're based out of at the airport. I go walking in the office and Hey, is, uh, is Kyle Scott around? I just wanted to touch base with him. Oh yeah. Yeah. You must be the one that called yesterday. No, uh-uh. no, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I'm just dropping in. Oh, okay. Well, some other guy called, he's coming in today too. I'm like, yeah, well, keep an eye open for him. Is Kyle around? <laughs> so she takes me back, you know, and, uh, you know, he and I, and I, I'm glad you're laughing. I, you know, <laughs> we settle in for, for a chat. He shows me the tanker show, you know, we own, or we, he owns a, you know, co-fire and then he owns an ag business. And, uh, so he shows me all that. We chat for a couple hours, you know, he gives me the the pat on the button. So, you know, we'll see you in a couple of years, kid. Come on back when you think you got what it takes and good luck. And, you know, I hate that story, but I love it because, as you well know, sometimes, dude, you got to bend the rules. The moral compass has to not always be pointed on north. I don't love that my career now, as I sit here in front of you, started on a lie, but it did. And I, I don't know. I mean, people can judge me all they want, but that's that's my story. And, and uh, yeah, I did what I had to do. He hates it, man. He does not like that story. So. <laughs> Um, dude, that is some and, Chad level bossness, dude. Fire. Holy well, shit. That is some Chad level bossness right there, dude. <laughs> I think it's great. I mean, hey, it worked. Yeah. So anyway, he, uh, but I had this little, you know, a little like, okay, man, I, I don't know if I can accomplish this, but it's cool. So, you know, life's still good back to work like normal, no changes there. And, uh, again, Zach's story time continues. Uh, this is uh this is kind of the last two before a decision has to be made. But uh, I'm over in Meeker on the Western Slope, and uh, had a great role over there on the ground, uh, task forcing or some shit. I don't know, whatever. And uh, coming back, and I'm just about to Crescent Hill, heading into Denver, and I'm in an agency truck, and the radio must have just been able to pick up a dispatch, and it was some you know miscellaneous medical call. I remember what it was. Doesn't matter. But dude, Brandon, it smoked me. Uh, I can't even really explain it, but like got really anxious, sweaty. It something was was wrong. It, it was hearing that medical, that tone just was it fucked with me inside. And and I, I still don't even know how to explain it, but it did. And then the the 
backup story to that is so again, it's it's coming from that job I love to it, a job that I enjoyed but didn't wasn't really passionate, but was affecting me mentally. Yeah, the paramedic. Fast forward a couple months from that, we go on a, a cardiac arrest in a nursing home again for the the dudes that do these lines of work. Not a significant story. We go, we had a, you know, I had a, another medic on the engine. I had some ambulance folks there. So a lot of, a lot of dudes, I was running the call, not because I was better than anyone, just because the way that the cards played out. And I'm telling dudes, you know, push this med, you know, change out your, you know, your compressions, all this and that, you know, nothing exciting. Doing your algorithms and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, just running the call, no, nothing cool. No, no, no hero shit here by any means. Take the patient and drop them off to the folks that really make a difference. And, uh, we're, we're outside the ED guys are restocking, doing whatever, shooting the shit. And this, this newer guy, maybe six months comes up and he's like, man, Sully, he's like, dude, I'll, I'll work, a, uh, I'll work with you any day. I was like, Oh yeah. You know, kind of laugh it off. He's like, you are the most calm, cool, collective medic I've ever worked with. Dude. Most guys would be like, Oh, that's cool, man. I, I've hit it. You know, I've hit a pinnacle. I'm, I'm, that's awesome. Dude, Brandon, I am here to tell you, I didn't sleep a wink that night, man. That was not, I was not cool, calm, and collective, dude. My mind, I was checked out. I was not some badass paramedic. I was on autopilot. And when he brought that up to me, it it really spurred spurred me being like, dude, something's not right here, man. The shit coming over the hill, the stuff my wife's saying, the drinking, things are changing in Zach and it's not for the better. And the only time I'm really happy is when I'm, I'm doing wildfire and even when I'm flying, things like that. And this job is starting to take a toll, but I still loved it, you know, and, uh, my boss at the time, Mary, you know, he, uh, got ordained, he was ordained online and married my wife. I know super awesome boss, good fireman, loved him to death, got him into wildland even a little bit, sits me down. He's like, dude, yeah, you gotta make some changes, man. And, uh, you gotta talk to this this gal and either you do it or you're going to be forced to do it. And, uh, so yeah, I go and talk to this gal and she's like, this job, uh, may, maybe time for a change. And I was like, all right, well, you know, I'll think about it, whatever. And no, there's no thinking about it. You're, you're done. Uh, so it kind of was like, I had a, a chance to make a decision. Like I always say, opportunities bring decisions. The decision was made for me, man. And so here's this great job, great pay, great benefits, great lifestyle, all the, the good stuff. And uh, now all of a sudden, I've, I've got to make a career change again. And it's like, well, I can't really go back to Wildland. I can, and I, I would have been happy to do it. But it's like, I'm 36. So I had a year to snag a perm, right? And then even that, well, it's going to yeah. be like a six, you know, and making half. Or worst case scenario, go back to being a seasonal, you know. And so, you know, it is what it is, man. Um, had to, had to make a jump. I had to make some decisions. Or thought I was going to make them, but they made them for me. And so, uh, well, think about it. If you were to like keep continuing down that road, you're already burnt out. You already got some like signs and stressors of P- uh, PTSI. I mean, it's like the, it's the whole thing of like well, either I need to make this choice or it's the choice is going to be made for me. And it may not be a good choice that is actually made. It's like one of those things you need to consider, man. And that's with anybody out there, right? Cause I know people that are in wildland, they're just burnt the fuck out and, you know, dealing with their own mental health issues. And it's, it's, it's very similar across the board for 
the reasons why we have to make that career change. I had to make mine. Luke had to make Luke Mayfield had to make his, I mean, a ton of other people. I mean, there's a slew of other people, including you that had to make that decision. And there's no, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that, man. Well, and there's not, man. And you're right. And, and again, looking at your lineup of your guests and listening to some of the ones where they talked about, it, I think those guys had a really good grasp and, and, and knew how to handle their stuff and were successful at it. And, and due to me, again, luck, things lined up, whatever it was, but I survived that when I don't know how it would have played out. Maybe I'd have been healthy as ever. Maybe I wouldn't have, if I would have stuck it out or, or fought it, you know, but, um, you know, I, I, it, it is what it is. And, um, it, it made me into who I am today and, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know? And, oh, yeah. um, I mean, look, yeah, at, so, look at Mike you know, West, man. He's a teacher now and he loves, he's loving life, dude. He, he's doing yeah. great, man. Absolutely. Gary Atterbury, he's up in the, in the GAC right now and, or the Northwest Coordination Center. And he's crushing it, man. They had to make those changes. Yeah. I mean, they're still remotely connected to fire just like you are, but that different change of pace, it worked out for them, all of them, right? So sure. fire may not be a sustainable thing for whoever's out there listening that is encountering some of these things, but also I'm a firm believer in there's no such thing as coincidence, right? Shit happens for a reason. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer. Like there is no fucking such thing as coincidence, man. Shit happens for a reason, just like it did to you, just like it did to me, just like it did to Mike, Gary, everybody, man. Everybody who's out there has got a similar story, man. And then no, there's plenty of out there that are living that struggle right now. And they just need to follow their heart, man. It's just like, listen to what your body's telling you. Yeah. You know, so I took that time uh, when I when I left that department, uh, figuring out my road. I, I just really jumped into flying um, again more than more than anything, just to help me through that transition. And uh, it was great. Um, and then some significant stars aligning. Luck really really came together. I was at the snowmobile expo with my wife, and this dude's kind of looking at me. I'm looking at him almost like we're going to size each other and, and box it out or something. And, he comes up, he's like, I know you. And I'm like, well, you look familiar too. And it turns out it's Kyle, the dude that owns Co-Fire. Oh, and you know, so he's a big snowmobiler. So we become snowmobile bros that winter and shit. And, uh, so he, he says, Hey man, can, can I get you to come out to our company training in February? So Co-Fire puts on a week to 10 day training every year, brings everyone in from wherever they're from, literally across the world, bring them in, get them trained up for the season, you know, all that stuff. A lot of flights a lot of practice drops. And he says, can you, can I get you to come in from a ground perspective and, and talk to the, the pilots? And then after the classroom, take us out and uh, call in some drops. So go out there and do that. Um, and it, it was super awesome. Started to build that exposure really into and what seats are, what they're capable of, you know, cause you and I, we've worked with them, especially, you, you know, we're both desert guys. So you're used to them out there, but again, I, I, I didn't know, you know, I fuck for all I knew the feds owned them. And it, it was a, you know, some Martian in there flying them around. I don't know. It, it just, they show up, they drop red stuff and they go away. Yep. So I'm building this exposure. Super awesome, man. You know, and, uh, jumping in there, we get done with that training and he's like, man, you know, I know you're interested in this, but I really think we can, we can maybe make this happen. And I'm like, no way. And he says, yeah, if you can get some ag time, because he has an ag business, but didn't have a, a seat for me to jump in, not an actual seat, but a seat of an airplane to go out and spray. Yeah. And he says, if you can time. get some ag time, dude, we can, we can get you into a tanker, I think in, in a, in a short amount of time. And so stars line up again, man, my family, my in-laws are from Iowa. 
And they call up one day and they're like, Hey, these two brothers, the Meyer brothers, um, they want to talk to you. So I go out, hop in the airplane, fly out there, meet them. And they're like, yeah, you want to come fly ag for us next year? All right. And this is where I've got to get into it. Dude, ag is a 10 hour podcast in itself. Like getting into ag, dude, you can have 2000 hours of flight time. You can be this amazing pilot. You can show up in an ag operator and say, Hey, I want to fly ag. They're going to say, cool. You're going to spend the first one or two seasons loading this airplane for $14 an hour, 16 <laughs> hours a day, being a laborer, doing the shit work, and you're never sitting in that airplane. And then after you prove yourself as a hard worker, you're not going to leave me, then we'll put you in an airplane. And then you're going to do shitty work for the next like three years. And then you might get real fields and blah, blah, blah. So ag, dude. Is insane. Fire's hard to get into. Aviation's hard to get into. Construction's hard to get into. Ag, dude, is like a pinnacle to get into. And uh, these dudes are like, yeah, you want to come fly for us? Wait, like, what? What the hell? Like, how huh. does this happen? So I, uh, I go to fly for them. Meant and, to be, dude. Um, I, go, I, I go and fly ag for them for a season, get done, go back to Colorado. Kyle's like, hey, man. This winter, or we're going to get you checked out in an air tractor. This winter, we're going to have you go out and do some seeding. So we go and we seed old burn scars. Yeah. And uh, yeah, to stop erosion. And he's like, we're going to send you out to seed this winter. So I'm flying low level. It's one thing to fly low level doing ag and row crops where it's flat. It's another thing to fly low level in Vernal, Utah in the mountains. Where it's steep as shit and yeah. gnarly. Yeah. So an ag, you know, we're six feet off the ground, you know, our, our wheels are touching the tassels of corn when we're spreading seed. We're not that low, you know, we're about 40 to 50 feet, but you're in every crevice in every Canyon. And, uh, so I'm in an air tractor. I'm not in an 802, but it's, it's the same model, just a little smaller. So I'm building experience in the air tractor. I'm building it flying low level in the mountains with the weird winds, the thermals. And, uh, and, oh, the best part about all this is I left it out is spray seasons generally end about the end of July. And so I was able to spray for in Iowa that first year and then for Kyle the second year. And then I would go out, you know, four or five rolls and the, the rest of the season on the ground and fire. So you double dipping son of a bitch. <laughs> dude, I got one foot in the air and one foot on the ground. You know, it's like, it doesn't get much better than that. And, uh, you know, again, awesome wife, because she's like, well, I don't remember exactly who you are and what you look like, but you know, we'll see in, in, in October or whatever, you know, but so super cool, man, getting to knock all that shit out, building a lot of experience and, uh, wrap up that second season of spraying, uh, in Colorado. So I sprayed for two seasons, one in Iowa, one in Colorado that winter it spread some more seed. And Kyle says, Hey man, you ready to get in a tanker? And, uh, so I was like, cool, man. So it's time to get ready for that. So again, away from Zach's story time, just a little data facts. So tanker pilots, uh, let me think about this. So VLATs, LATs, seats, and type one helicopters all have to go to a class called NAFA. It's National Aerial Firefighting Academy. It's put on by the federal government. And uh, it's basically the best way to put it. It's a 130, 190 for pilots. So pilots do their pilots is far as I know, this is not a Zacchaeus special. I think I'm the only tanker pilot that's came from the ground. I definitely in seats, I believe. So most guys, I, I tell that not again about Zach, but because most pilots don't know shit about fire and that's okay. Yeah. 
Oh, 100%, dude, just from my experience as a ground pounder. I mean, yeah, pilots don't know shit about fire. Exactly. So we got to train them up, right? They're just like me in that 13190. You know, they're in NAFA. It's a three-day course. They put on two of them a year. Um, So I go to that, get wrapped up with that, come back, um, go to our 10-day company training, which is like, fuck, dude, four days of just drops after drops after drops after drops just you're getting like calluses on your thumbs for the uh the pickle button (laughs) so done you know making mistakes learning from them uh again our company training dude taught me so much and uh super dialed in so you get done and the company training is not necessarily required but you get done with nafa you have to do that then you have to do a check ride and uh uh an individual from the, or a couple of individuals come out from the uh, feds from Boise. They do like roughly an hour, hour and a half oral thing. They, they go over the contract with you, which again, aviation dudes totally understand that they go, they go through the contract with you and then you go out and do a couple of flights. And uh, if you, if you do good on that, you get a level two pilot card and 13190 and a 212 and uh way you go as a Sawyer, you know? And uh, so yeah, you get this <laughs> level two card just enough to be completely fucking dangerous out there. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you in a bit. Good luck. You know? so, uh, <laughs> Buckle up, buddy. This is going to be a yeah. fun ride. <laughs> so that first year, you know, um, again, work out a great agreement with, with the folks at co-fire. So I'm going to spend the, spend the beginning of the season, uh, flying a tanker and then come July 30th, I'll be out on the ground the rest of the time. And, uh, they saw the value in that man you know, they, they're like, it's, it's great having this firefighter in an airplane. And it was, uh, yeah, we'll get into that in a sec, but, uh, yeah, they had a, they somehow saw that, that that was a good plan. I still think they're half crazy putting their, putting the weight on me, but, uh, anyway, so I take off as a tanker pilot that first year. And, um, as a, so a lot of times seats, again, for those of you that know, I apologize to, to go over something you already understand, but a lot of times seats, we like to travel in flights and the flights any more than one airplane. So flight of two, flight of three, flight of four, dude, there's air attacks out there that used to order up flights of eight. Um, now we're limited to no more than four in a flight. But uh, for me, all of co-fires contracts are a double contract. So it's flights of two. So don't know that I ever had a solo one, but for the most part, you're always with a more experienced pilot, which is awesome. And uh, what I did is I did relief that first year. So pilots, again, some companies do it different, but for the most part, it's a 12 on two day off rotation. So for me, I would just go and cover on the guys' days off. And with nine airplanes, you know, I basically would just, just rock and roll and, and have a couple days off here and there, but I'm getting to go, you know, to Reno to, to Loveland, Fort Collins, to Rifle, to Grand Junction, you know, getting to see all these different areas. And it was killer experience. Um, a couple things, you know, as seats, we can, we have kind of two ways we can work. One, we can work under an air attack, you know, and that's an airplane that's flying above us and they, they're giving us direction. So I attribute it to being like, you know, the number two saw on the crew, you know, hey, here's your, here's your chunk of line, go to work and you get a, you get to, size up your own trees. You get to make some of those decisions, but for all intents and purposes, you're not making big picture decisions. Yeah. That's what it's like as a seat pilot under an air attack, you know, Hey, they'll give you your direction, but yeah, I'm flying the airplane. I'm controlling the power, but they're telling me what they want to see for a gate opening or a coverage level where they want the drop at. 
The other thing is if we don't have an air attack, we're initial attack. And, uh, you know, we make all the decisions while, you know, chatting with the folks on the ground, seeing what their priorities and needs are for the day. And so got to experience both of that. And by far, I love the IA side, you know, and we all love IA, you know. Oh, dude, that's like the money. That's everybody loves IA. Like who, who, what dude, firefighter is out there that says like, oh yeah, you know what? I want to go on a staging role to, I don't know, Lakeview, yeah. Oregon. Nobody says that. Nobody. <laughs> a lot of tanker pilots, dude, don't like operating without an air attack. Um, well, it's a different game it, though. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, you're flying a gigantic metal hunk of stuff around the, uh, around the sky and you know, there's, there's serious consequences to anything that could have been missed. And you're rolling solo on an IA for a tanker. Yeah, that, that changes the game. So I can understand why. Yeah. And then too, you know, again, with their with their not understanding of fire, you know, and it's again, they're they're great aviators, but if you take a first year guy, a second, a third year guy, depending on what their previous seasons are, they may have been, you know, I talked to I was in Ontario, Oregon earlier this year, and there's a guy there. He started in March and he's got 13 hours for the year, you know. So you know, if he finishes out 20 hours this year, I think he'd be lucky. So he's going into it next year with not much experience. So I say that because a tanker pilot not feeling comfortable without an air attack is, is totally cool because they're not necessarily firefighters. I've met dudes that know nothing about fire. A couple of years later, dude, they're total pipe hitting tanker pilots and they understand fire. I've seen dudes that got a decade in it and they still don't quite grasp it. They understand the anatomy of it. They understand some of it, but some of the terminology, you, that stuff, some of the vernacular that firefighters yeah. use, which there's definitely our own language too. And that's one thing that I think that we should brush upon later in this episode yep. here when we get to that we'll get is it. like how to talk to pilots. Cause a lot of people don't know how to. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, man, got some killer experience, but the one thing I learned, man, is, uh, dude, IA was for me and, uh, and I, I didn't love, you know, once you get that taste of leadership and I know you've had some, and, and some of the folks on here listening have, once you get that taste of leadership, it's kind of hard to go back to being second saw, right? Because you like, for me, man, you know, when I started to move into that, that single resource boss, like, all right, I'm scouting, I'm figuring out line placement. I, I really, I, I like that when I was flying the IA and the tanker, I loved it. Uh, when I was flying under an air attack, it was cool, but not as, you know, so yeah, it's like kind of going through the, not necessarily going through the motions, but you just like, you can't like actively be super engaged, like hyper-focused on it, I guess. I mean, yeah, like my, I guess that's so, how I see it. So what came from that Brando is, um, this, this great mentor of mine, man, he is, uh, you know, his name's Isaac. He is, uh, he's one of the best in, in my eyes, one of the best air attacks, a solid mentor. He's been mentoring me for years. He reached out and, we didn't reach out very far, but he's like, Hey man, you got to think about this air attack thing. I said, well, <laughs> I got this tanker thing and this other shit going on. I was like, I, I don't even know what that takes. And, and this is a good point for me to segue into again, dude, guys can shoot holes in this. I'm just going to tell it from Zach's perspective, but you know, the, the first step in becoming an air attack is, is doing a ride along. And, and that's basically just, you, you reach out to your fixed wing ops specialist maybe a local air attack and you say, Hey, I'm interested in this. You know, they'll fill you in on some of the details better than I will. But Isaac's like, dude, I really think you should think about this. And I was like, okay, man. And he's like, it's, it's literally Zach. It's like your IA story every day. In a sense, you know, you're getting to make those strategy and tactics decisions. So 
I call up our fixed wing ops specialist in region two. I go and meet up with him and, uh, in deer park last year. And, uh, we bomb out uh, some killer fires, strategy tactics. I think I did oh, 13 days, just short of a full roll with them. And it was great, man. And, and that totally set the stage for me and, and wanting to get into, to air attack, which leads us honestly to, to where we are today. And, um, you know, so that's, that's kind of the, the big overview. I know I burned a lot of time talking about me and, and I kind of thought this You're would good, be a man. good spot to segue into some of the specifics first on the tanker, then maybe some of the air attack. And, and hopefully that gets the awareness out there and, and helps some of the other folks figure out their, their next route. If you're good with it, man. Oh, absolutely, man. I just want to say that's pretty damn cool story though. Like you went from ground pounder <laughs> to paramedic to ag pilot to lying about basically showing up to Kyle's uh, business and then getting your foot in the door, man. It's not it's seeking those opportunities. I think is like really important takeaway about all this, uh, this, this whole story about how you became a, uh, a, a ground pounder to pilot to air now air attack trainee. Are you still a trainee or are you qualified? Did you get qualified yet? Nope. Nope. Still, so still, still a trainee and, and happy to be one, man. You know, we, we flew our ass off the last couple of days, just, just short of eight hours today. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I think 116 days on the road this year, this, this fire season has not been great for trainees. Uh, I don't care what role you're in. It has no, been a, it has it's been a slow season, which is good. The taxpayers need to get a win every once in a while. Um, but for trainees, dude, Shit, the firefighters I I need to get a little bit of a reprieve. I mean, the last two, absolutely. three years in a row were pretty fucking gnarly, but now, I mean, it's a little bit of reprieve and now, now people are always worried about getting a paycheck of course, but now we have infrastructure to help bolster those numbers. So people are sitting pretty absolutely. good. I think they should uh, take into account that like, Hey, this is kind of a gift. I mean, you're in one of the hot spots of the nation right now. So region two, region one, and region six are going to be popping off any day now. So take that deep breath for everybody who's a ground pounder out there or a pilot or air attack or whatever. Take a deep breath because shit may hit the fan any day now. Just one lightning bust away. Yeah. I mean, I think we, I think we ended up with 50 starts up here and uh, spread out all over region one up and I'm up around Kalispell, but I think it went all the way down into the flathead. It's, it's everywhere, man. We oh, yeah. really sprung up today. So yeah, man. Um, you know, some of the I, I reached out to some of the the folks, uh, some of the other tanker pilots, and I kind of came up with a list of some stuff that we we run into. And um, so I apologize, I got to look at my notes though. But ooh, we're getting into so, how to talk to a tanker pilot. Well, yeah, I like this. And, and so, um, you know, one of the things that we we stress upon folks that we think they forget about is. So, you know, put yourself in, in the, you know, in, in one of your favorite spots in Battle Mountain and, and you're making your way in on the engine and you're sorting it out on the map, trying to figure out the best access. And, you know, you've got seats inbound, you know, those seats are, are paid by the hour. Uh, the, the vendors are paid by the hour. The pilots are paid by the hour. And uh, so when they're sitting on the ground, they're, they're not making much when they're flying, they're doing pretty well. So asking them to do this is totally cool. But you know, having them help you in with that access the same way you would an air attack, a, a helco, a helicopter, you know, those seats are more than willing to help you in there. Um, also, you know, if they get there before you, have them give you a size up. In NAFA, every seat pilot is trained to, to give a fast five size up, which hits the big five things. I, I'm more than happy to go through them, but I'm willing to bet we all know what they are. They'll bang that out for you. And uh, it's practiced a lot in, uh, in NAFA. So utilize them for that access and size up. 
So let's go over fast five real quick, because I know there's going to be a lot of newer people out there listening to this. And then also people of the general public that listen to this podcast that have no idea what we're talking about. I'm trying to get better at this with fast five and the acronyms of the fire jargon, which you know, only people that have had a couple of years of experience really truly know, but so fast five, right? That's your typical size up. So go ahead and explain. Yeah. What that so is. again, a lot of dudes, and I'm pretty sure you just bonded off on me because are you a little shaky on what the fast five are? Uh, acreage rate of spread. Let's go for it, man. No, my fast five is probably exactly not, not how it is on the knee board, but again, those, a lot of those tanker pilots will just read it off their knee board, exactly how they're taught in NASA. And that's exactly the way we want them to do it. You know, but a lot, you know, the, the broad strokes are, you know, that first, that location, that lat long, mm-hmm. they're not going to give you anything other than that lat long. They don't know, you know, a township and all that stuff. You're not going to get a legal from them. No. So they know. give you that lat long. They'll give you a rough size. They'll give you um, possibly a fuel type. Potential give maybe. You, uh, what's that? A potential probably. Yeah. Um, the spread potential and then, uh, anything, any structures or any values at risk. So real simple down and dirty just to help you get started. And, Oh, excuse me. Additional resources. That's always a little, that one seems like weird, like from an aviator's perspective, like why, I mean, especially with someone that doesn't have like the experience of you, like, I mean, what, what are they going to say? Yes. And two strike teams and three helicopters. I don't know what they're going to say. So that schools a lot of conversation, actually, man. Um, and in the next year or two, I bet we see that get really redefined. You know, yeah. uh, NAFLA is pretty new. So you got to give it a chance to grow. But I, in the next couple of years, I think we'll get that a little more figured out. But you'll a lot of times you'll hear dudes and their their additional resources. May, they may try to throw out some some ground stuff. They'll be like, well, we need some some fire engines. Copy. Thank you. Good. Uh, type one, right? Type one engines. You need type ones. Okay, yeah. let's get those you out know, there. So they, again, <laughs> they just don't quite understand. You know, you might get some dude, and they'll just blow you away when he's like, "Yeah, hey, I'll take a strike team of dozer, strike team of engines, uh, two hand, two type one hand crews, and a type two hand crew." And you're like, "Okay, man, who is this, and where did you come from?" Which so, is like 120 acres running uphill with the wind. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna get broad strokes. Um, a lot of times, those additional resources they'll throw out aviation resources. And that's kind of what I, we like to hear, at least from Zach's perspective as a, a really green air attack trainee. I would want to hear from them just whatever they think on aerial resources. Surprisingly enough, they're always going to say, you definitely need me to load and return. I, I don't know why they how they come up with that. but that's <laughs> Gee, I wonder. <laughs> okay, thank you. I guess I, I finally did a shitty joke. So, um, so yeah, asking for that help with that access, that size up. Um, they can definitely get you started on that. The next thing is, is a target description. So in NAFA, this is drilled into the pilots. And I ask every ground folks, ground folks to follow this when they're talking to them. Fire anatomy, man, go back to that 13190, that same picture we've all seen of that fire that looks like a glove. You've got the left flank, you've got the, the head, you've got the finger, you've got the spot, you've got the right flank, the right shoulder, and then the heel. Go off of that. Pilots that don't know shit about fire are trained relentlessly in fire anatomy. So we always ask from an air attack perspective, from a pilot perspective, stay away from cardinal directions as much as possible, Brandon. Is Because as you well know, your west, my west, and air attacks west, 
a tanker's west can all be four different directions, right? Oh, yeah. Um, pilots are looking at a compass right in front of them. Air attacks are looking at a compass. You're going off of maybe, hey, I know this district. I'm pretty sure this is to the west. Just go off that fire anatomy, man. Um, hey, you got the heel down here. I've got two engines and a buggy sitting here. Yeah, I got that. Okay, we're going to come up the left flank. I want you to start where the heel ties in at the left flank. We're going to bring it up. Or, hey, you know, maybe they can't do that because it's uphill. Hey, I want you to build line backwards and I want you to come down the left flank and tie it in at the heel. You know, whatever that looks like, go off that anatomy. Those pilots will be successful at that. Well, you brought up a good point right there too, is like, think about the aspect of the slope too. I mean, tankers aren't going to be dropping uphill typically. This is not how tankers work. Okay. <laughs> Just get that out right. of your head. So, I mean, if you're looking at fires always run uphill, right? That's 99% of the time, right? Unless you get like sure. some freakish like Zephyr wind or some shit going down the hill over here in like the Sierra front, but tankers need to come downhill, right? So Definitely. think about that before you give directions. Sure. And a lot of times, you know, even from an air attack perspective, you know, just today I had, had a lot of tankers without an air or without a, a lead. And I, I, I give them what I want them to accomplish and I'll let them make the decision. You know, I've dropped uphill. It's, it's not a, it's not the, the best practice, but sometimes it is for the, maybe you've got the sun blaring in your face and going downhill is more dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it's subjective. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's whatever works for the pilot. The pilot's going to do it what is. they want to do at the end of the day. Right. It's their shit. Give, yeah. Give them the direction, Brando, like tell them, Hey, this is what I want you to do. And then they'll make that decision. You know, that's, that's their, their wheelhouse up there. And so, yeah, you know, go off that a fire anatomy. That'll make everyone's lives so much easier. The other thing is, is, uh, you know, strobes, mirrors, and paneling. So again, those of us, you think about it, we're all familiar with working with helicopters, have tons of time doing it. Most folks don't know much about working with fixed wing and that's okay. Strobes obviously have been a, a game changer for us in aviation and strobes can work good when you're dealing with an air attack. Strobes can work great when you're dealing with a, a tanker. So, so keep them if you got them. Um, no, no problem there. Just know helicopters, they work great. Tankers, they work a little, not as great air attacks. They work even less because helicopters are 500 feet and below. Usually air attack or excuse me, tankers are a thousand feet above them. Air attacks are a thousand feet above them. So we're air attacks are like 2,500 feet above the ground. So that strobe may be harder for us to see mirror flashes, dude. I'm an old school mirror guy. I love it when people mirror flash me when I'm it's flying a tanker. So bright. It is so yeah. bright when someone flashes you like a good flash with a mirror. Yeah. yeah. You can't not see it. If, when I'm working with a helicopter on the ground, uh, I'll still strobe them. I don't do a lot of mirror flashing unless I really feel like I need to. But when I'm dealing with anything other than helicopters, I'm a mirror guy. And, and I, when I'm flying a tanker or air attacking, I love mirrors. Dude, when you're dealing with fixed wing, Keep the paneling in your pack, man. Paneling, I've I've played with it. I've tested it. I've been in there. We have played and played with a big paneling, and this shit just don't work. You're going just too fast. Uh, you're too high. Just you know, and definitely, definitely don't be that cat that's raising it. I'm a waving tool my with a tool yeah combi with the flagging it. on it. <laughs> yeah, dude. Just again, works for works for uh, rotor wing, not so much for fix. So oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so coverage levels, 
So this is a tricky one. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it because it changes, but uh, generally seats have coverage levels one through six. The coverage level is how much it, it comes out. There's a whole scientific thing behind it. There's numbers that are in the contract. We're not talking about that, man. That's almost like gee whiz information. But coverage levels one through six is uh, six is going to be the most. It's going to just come out in a big blob. One is going to is a grass fire. You know, you're going to string it out for 72 miles or whatever. Um, heavy air tankers, their coverage levels are different. So we're just focused on seats for tonight. Um, the, the big thing is, is if you're working an IA and that tanker's there, that seat's there and you say, Hey man, he's going to probably ask you what coverage level do you want? Tell him, you know, this is always the easy button is you can say, Hey man, what do you recommend? And they're, they're going to say, Hey, you know, for this fuel type, I'm going to recommend a three. Well, that's a double-edged sword. That dude may not quite know know enough about fire to know what he's going to accomplish, but uh, or he may be just dialed in and that three is exactly what you want. So you're kind of jumping out on a limb, um, but that's going to be your best resource if you don't understand coverage level. And there's three different gates on different seats and their coverage levels are actually different. So what I give you from my airplane is going to be different than what a different vendor with a different gate. So don't get too hung up on it. The reason I bring this up is, again, feel free to ask that pilot for his recommendation. But you may hear him tell you, hey, I'm going to give you a coverage level three. And you can chase that if you want. You can go down that rabbit hole and have him explain it to you over the air. Or maybe you've been lucky enough to listen to this podcast and be like, copy coverage level three, send it. You know, um, <laughs> it, it, it's up to you, however you choose. Again, that pilot, I guarantee he's, he's probably making, you know, 500 bucks an hour to circle up there. So he's going to be more than willing to talk to you about coverage levels. So, um, Copy yeah, that. I got a question for you. So, yeah, uh, send it, man. old mentor of mine, uh, especially, you know, he, he was making some recommendations about the three, six, nine rule. If you're dealing with the medium, so obviously not a seat, but a medium and above, right? Sure. The three, six, nine rule, if you're out in the desert. So if you're in the desert, start at a three and adjust from there. If you're in something like, I don't know, maybe some, I don't know, junie or something like that, some dense shit, you know, go with a six. And then if you're in thick ass timber, go with a nine. I mean, is that, have you ever heard that before? I don't know if he was blowing smoke up my ass or, or not, but I don't know. What's your thoughts you know, on that? I haven't, you know, um, seats, if you're going to work a seat in heavy timber, which, um, you're pissing you have to wind. with you by, with your previous <laughs> statement, I, I, I have used seats. I've used them all day today in, in heavy timber, but it's not as great. I don't, you're not wrong about that, but if you're going to use a seat in heavy timber, generally a four. So dude, seats, if you have them dumping a six, that's almost like an, an E dump, an emergency dump. And that, that's, that's just like a, a salvo, really, just all at once. It is. Yeah. It's violent. Um, and it's, it's just really not super safe. You know, they can, we can do a six and it, but it's going to come out in the glob. It's not going to be pretty, you know, a four would be as probably as high as I would go. So a four and heavy timber is going to be ideal. PJ, a three or a four, a grass, a two, you know, even a three possibly, but a two ideal PJ again, three or four. Um, I've never done, I'm sure I've done a one in training. I've never done one on a fire. Uh, a one would probably have to again, be like, you know, three to five foot flame links and really thin grass, yeah, uh, something like that. But a two to a, a two to a four is going to be on point. 
a lot of times you're just going to hear a lot of fours and that's okay. It's a good, you know, like on lats, we use a lot of sixes and uh, that's a, kind of a good go-to coverage level unless you really know the aircraft. So hmm. okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, it was just like one of those things that kind of like stuck with me and I was all like, I'm never going to use this, but three, six, nine, I'm like, nah, no, nah, yeah. I'm just going to let the pilot do what they, they know best. That's usually, yeah. the, that's always the operating standard that I've always went with. Yeah. Um, so the other, the, the last couple is line clearances. Always my favorite one. Bingo. You and I chatted Thank about this. You. Yeah. I see that Thank smile. you. Yeah. Line clearances are tricky, dude. So, um, it was funny before I started fighting fire in the air, line clearances were always a point of contention with me because Brandon, what you consider a line clearance and what I consider a line clearance are two separate things, right? Oh yeah. To you, it's like, Hey, we're just going to bump into the black. We're just going to bump out a, you know, a, a half a chain, or maybe for me, I want you bumping out a whole chain or a chain and a half, you know? So I don't have a great black and white answer on line clearances, but what I will say is I have, again, I'm going to go back to Zach's story time. And my very first drop was in Cortez. I had an air attack there, laid me out and I'm coming in and I'm on, I'm on my final and I'll get into final in a second. Yeah. I got that written down. I'm, I'll be on final and uh, I get cleared to drop and just as I'm literally punching the button, I see all the dudes down there and their, their hands are in front of them. What do you think they're doing? Jet run. <laughs> well, or they're, what, what's everyone else usually doing? Taking or pictures. taking pictures. Yeah. One of the two. The I can't see the phones, but I can tell their hands are in front and they're taking pictures. And, and I get it, dude. Uh, you know, when I, I was a newer guy, man, badass taking, shots. Let's be honest here. Like nothing yeah. like tanker jobs. So that's like hero shit that, you know, Instagram yeah. craves and I'm guilty of it. You've probably been Absolutely. guilty of it. Everybody's been guilty of it. So let's get that yeah. out of the way. Those motherfucking cameras have a zoom function on it. Use it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I get it, man. But I look down and just as I'm punching it, I see him and you know, whatever, no, no issues, nothing comes out of this, no accidents, no cool punchline. But bro, the, um, as a tanker pilot, regardless of if you're a, a, a B lateral B, well, it doesn't matter. All tanker pilots. And I would assume helicopter pilots, if you're coming in on final and on the drop and you've got folks on your line, you've got to go around. And you think for that Cortez fire I had, it was myself and, and my number one pilot in an air attack. Yeah. So if IA. I have to go, what's that? You're doing IA. Yeah. yeah. And it, but if I have to go around, no big deal. Now take it to Zach's world today where I've got four tankers and two helicopters in the, all in the orbit. And I have an airplane that has to go around, dude, that I may have an airplane short on fuel that now I have to jettison him somewhere or I have to, you know, get him down sooner and break up the rotation. The point is, is when aircrafts have to go around, they're doing it for a good reason and that's okay. Yeah. But it costs time, money, and effort. And uh, so we want to reduce that as ground guys as much as possible. So being on the line to get a cool picture or because we want to get some mud on our helmet to, you know, post it on it on the gram, dude, that's not acceptable behavior. No. You know, you said it best. The cameras have, have, uh, have zooms, you know, and there's no, there's no awesomeness to having mud on your gear, bro. Those days, I don't know if they were ever cool, but they're and for this, for this firefighters world, it, they're never cool. So just bump out a little bit further 
and get those pictures, watch the show. I mean, that's why we're here is all these cool things, but clear that line because your actions have a lot of repercussions that affect a lot of other missions and a lot of other aircraft. And one last thing, just imagine, take your role. I don't care if you're a contractor, you're a cooperator, you're a fed, but you, you know, you're, you're on an engine and you're helping the crews hold on a burn or you're on that burn on that crew and you're pre-treating with helicopters. And I, as an air attack, have to hold those helicopters off because I've got a tanker on the drop. Now I have to have him go around because this cat was overtaking pictures on the line. Now all of a sudden we lose that burn, Yeah, you know? So dude, our repercussions, our actions have a lot of repercussions. And I know all of us out there know that, and I'm sorry, I'm getting on a little soapbox, but clear that line guys. And I wish I could say clear that line to, to a chain, to a solid 66 feet. I, I can't say that because sometimes that's not feasible. Well, yeah, there's but, a lot of Kentucky windage in that, right? I mean, you got absolutely. wind drift, you've got thermals, you've got all this other shit coming on that are all these <laughs> other factors that are coming on to the scenario. Right. I mean, a chain may not be enough or hell, I mean, the winds could be just blowing so hard crosswind that you completely miss a drop. That's a possibility. Right. It happens. And dude, guys are going to get retarded on, you know, today yeah, I, I dropped the tanker and the tanker was off. He was off. Literally. We had some wind drift. And so his IC was there by himself. And he's like, dude, was that the intended line? No, man. You know, he, he was off the wind caught him. And it, you know, my trainer in the back's like that dude's got mud on him right now. And you know, so it's going to happen. So if I see a guy with mud and I'm on the ground, it's not like, well, this guy's a jackass. So I, I didn't want anyone to think that I had to put a little disclaimer in there. Well, but. it's just due diligence, right? I mean, like Absolutely. error on the side of safety. I mean, these things, I mean, we've seen the videos that Cal Fire and the Forest Service produced down in Southern California, yes. right uh, down in Southern California, man. This was an S2 that they dropped on that like yep. Suburban or something like that, or like yeah. a Chevy Blazer. It fucking crushed that thing like a tin can, man. It was like someone just took a boot and stomped on it. Now think about that in mass and velocity. We're talking physics here. What is retardant weigh per gallon? Oh, dude, I think it's 9.2. It's got to be you're heavier than water. You're a jackass for putting me on the spot, Brandon. Thanks I, a lot. But, uh, hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I it's think heavier it's, I think than it's water. 9.2 so, is what it is nine pounds per gallon and this thing's dumping 800 gallons. Right. And now if you're, yeah, that's a lot of mass and velocity coming right at you. It could very well fucking kill you. Yeah. And you know, I know we all unfortunately have been in this. We, we've probably seen the news this year, but we've had a couple of accidents, a couple of passed away due due to snags. Um, you know, I've got some history with that with some folks I worked with in Craig. And, and so I get that. And, you know, today, again, I hate to keep going back to Zach's story time, but today, you know, that was our big concern with snags, you know, and we're all surrounded. I don't care if you're in region five to region two, we've got nothing but disease trees everywhere. So snags are an issue. So even if you're not getting pelted by 72 pounds of retardant, what's that retardant bringing down? It's going to bring snags with it. And that's just the way the world we live in. And dude, unfortunately, them snags, that straight up kills more firefighters and probably booze and bullets, man. So I don't know, I'm getting on a soapbox, but just clear that line as much as possible. Um, and that brings me to the, to the second to the last one on the tankers is tankers call out legs again for you aviation folks. This is, uh, you know, go grab a beer and, and come back in two minutes and we'll be past this day. Cause you guys already get this, but legs, you know, um, it's a, it's a rectangular pattern. 
the big one to, to pay attention to is final. And, and that goes for a lot of helicopter pilots are good about calling their finals, but fixed wing will always call our legs. And if there's not an air attack there, we call them over our air to ground channel. So you'll hear a pilot say, hey, uh, tanker 862 is on final for the drop gate is armed, coverage level three. And it, it's always funny because, you know, whoever the ground contact is, they'll usually pipe, are, are you calling, you know, are you calling Division Bravo? And then you got to get on right before you're about to drop. No, 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 no. I'm just calling my leg. You know, no, no worries there. You know, answer the ready if you see fit, whatever. But when they, when you hear that final, know that that is they're online for their drop, and you know their final. They may have thirty minutes or thirty seconds or, or two minutes before they drop. But when you hear final, that pilot's getting ready to go to work. Um, so. You know, if you know where he's dropping and he says, I'm on final, you need to make sure your folks are out of there long before that. If they're still gaggling, get them the hell out of there and be starting to look up for snags after that drops over with. So, again, those, those legs, when you hear that final, uh, pay attention. OK, so. so caveat to that. Right. So we I mean, you've been on fires where you're eyeing and like basically a ground guy take it from the boots on the ground perspective, a fucking seat will come out out of nowhere. And now if you're in a, a mountainous area, you got a lot of sound barriers. So it's not necessarily that you'll hear these guys coming. So in the event that you don't hear traffic because you got too much shit going on on tack and you're getting walked on air to ground, right? You don't hear them call their leg, their final, mm -hmm. and they just show up out of nowhere. Is there any last resort measures that you could uh, actually do to prevent someone getting nailed by the drop? Not really. So the big thing is, is, um, dude, you know, I spent, uh, I spent a, a good chunk of my, my very first role as an air attack training, just, just crushing it in Texas this year. Mm. And we did a lot of fires where we don't have comms with the ground, you know, and we're talking not just seats, V lats, lats, everything. And, um, sometimes oh, dude, I you got just got to get Texas and V lats. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I yeah. got a story about that one in 2011. Holy shit, man. Coming out of the smoke hall and all you see is headlights and this cacophony. I was like, oh shit, run. <laughs> yeah. You got it, you know, in places like that. So I guess I bring up Texas because you got to get a little gangster with it. By far, they're, they're so much better than they were the first time I ever went down there. It's like a heavy equipment boss, but I bring up Texas because a lot of times we don't have any, any way to communicate with those, those folks on the ground. Yeah, like and that's and that's stuff. okay. We just we give them a you know, hey, it would make sense to go direct. It would be the best thing here, but these dudes are out there, you know, doing a mobile attack with an engine, so we just can't. So guess what? We got to go indirect. You know, again, sea pilots are not going to. I'll I'll stand behind this. Accidents happen; they're going to happen, obviously. But every sea pilot that I've ever met is going to give a wide berth if they cannot get that line clear. They're still going to go to work. It just may may be more indirect. Another thing a seat might do is they may come in and this is what I would do, but I'm going to give you a dry run and I'll, and I'll do it. I'll come down and I'll do low level and I'll try to kind of nudge you guys, scare you guys out of the way. I'll do it maybe two or three times. And then if the folks are still there, I'm probably just going to go into rat. So, but in all intents and purposes, you know, things have gotten pretty good and uh, they could go direct with the repeater with uh, with dispatch. Dispatch may call you on the ground and say, "Hey, you know, kick over to your air to ground." So we've got a lot of tools in our toolbox to make it better. 
you know, sure, bro, we can always improve, but you know, it, it's definitely better than it was five, eight, ten years ago. So yeah, because I know I've been in those situations that it's just like unavoidable. You're just gonna eat the turd sandwich and get nailed by retardant. Sometimes that happens. Sure. I understand that, but I mean. I don't know, hit the deck or something. Don't stand there and just wear it. <laughs> like get the, try and yeah. try and move, try and duck, try and like, you know, lay down and, you know, hard hat towards the drop and all that stuff, you know, that they teach you in basic. But sure. yeah, dude, it's, it's one of those things that I was just wondering if there's a way because yeah, you could probably try and hit them on air guard or whatever, but there's probably going to be so much radio traffic. Like we were chatting about earlier that you're net, the pilot's never going to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing is, is, and unless you pop up, uh, pop smoke for another question, the last one will be feedback. So again, go back to that IA, you're, you're on that engine, you're whatever your role is, you get a seat to come in and does a drop, let them know, man. Hey, uh, you were, you were late on the start. You were two seconds too early, whatever it is, your line, you know, great start, but your line was, uh, was off one wingspan too far to the left or too far to the right you know, give them that feedback. And they really want to know that um, because it doesn't matter if you're a new or old pilot, you just, you know, sometimes, Hey, with the wind, I thought I had my correction figured in. I didn't. Okay. Copy. Next one will be better. You know, and it may take, may take the whole day to get the last drop perfect. But if you don't give that feedback, there's no room for growth. And it's not necessarily a training thing, but so many things come into play when you're dropping that stuff and, and the re- retardant will just fall a certain way. So give good, solid feedback. We, we want that. Um, we, yeah, it's, it's like water to us. We, we got to have it. Oh, so. yeah. No, absolutely, man. I mean, that's one of those things too, is just like even preloading people with feedback. Be like, if you're, if you're familiar with an area, be like, Hey, you know, I don't know, half wing in half wing out on your drop works the best in this fuel type or something like that. Kind of prime people of these pilots for, you know, being successful right off the bat. I mean, fuck, why not, man? feedback is always important. If you're not getting what the desired effect on target that you want, talk to them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, uh, so any other questions on tanker stuff, anything, I, anything you think I missed there, Brando? I don't think we have, man. I, honestly, okay. you know, we got a little good, uh, a couple of good nuggets of gold out of there, especially for people that are like picking up and starting to work with seats, especially on the IA realm. Um, I think one topic that we didn't really cover is like, working with air attack and getting the Yeah, I got it in front of me, man. I okay. I just didn't want to jump to a new topic unless we were ready. But and if we're something good. comes to you, man, don't don't you won't mess me up. Jump in there if you got a question about seats. But yeah, so the air attack stuff, um you know, so a couple of things that I didn't even understand is is when we're dealing with an air attack, you know, years the, the last you know two or three years is overhead i got the experience of working with them you know when i was just on the crew or, or digging or whatever man i i didn't pay attention you know you just heard them on the radio and thought there was some mystical figure up there but uh you know an air attack uh an air attack can be in a fixed wing it can be in a helicopter you know just like a helco a helco can be in a helicopter or it can even be in a fixed wing um those are that that just a uh, one of their qualifications and the best way to explain to me is, you know, a, a task force can be in a pickup, a UTV or in an engine, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's just a mode of transportation. So if you hear me as an air attack up there and you see a helicopter flying above, you don't keep looking for a fixed wing turbo commander up there. Um, I'm, I'm the cat right above you in, in the a star, you know, so wanted to put that out there. Um, so the, the pipeline again, 
for the, the dialed in air attacks out there that are listening, I'm sure I'll skip over something, but this is just my perspective. Uh, but the, the pipeline is you got to have your division you got to or an IC3. You can have both, obviously, but uh, you have to have one or the other. You got to get that ride along in. Um, so going up and, and the reason behind that ride along is it's, it's kind of simple. A, to make sure you want to do it, make sure it's something you're interested in. And then also, Brandon, uh, making sure you, your bladder can handle, you know, four, four and a half hours up there and make sure you don't get sick. You know, I'll be honest with you, dude, my first couple of rolls as a ride along, and this is probably the first time I've ever made this public, but dude, I, I didn't like it sitting in the backseat of that camera. I got sick a couple of times. I didn't do tiny yeah. little circles. <laughs> you're just, when you're in the back and as an air attack trainee, I sit up front and the, the trainer sits in the back and they're pretty versed at sitting back there. So they do just fine. But my first couple of times back there, it was not fun. Especially as a pilot, I'm used to flying. So when I'm not, I'm getting beat up and the tail's wagging back there. I'm like, this is horrible. <laughs> Why did uh, I do this? <laughs> yeah. So you got to get that ride along in. Um, and again, and the reason behind that, a quick little backstory is, you know, before you, they didn't used to require that. And, and I'll get into the academy, but the academy, I've heard numbers that I'd say the good average is about 90 grand a student to go to the academy. Holy shit. And you don't want to send a dude to the academy. And then he gets out and he gets in for his first training assignment, throws up and can't stop. And it's like, well, this isn't for me. And we just wasted 90 grand in a seat, you know, on a a 12, you know, you only allow 12 people a year to go to the academy. And it's like, shit. So you'll be good, buddy. Just load up on that Odanzatron. You'll be fine. Everything's going to be great. (laughs) You may fall asleep the whole time, but hey, whatever works. No. So get that ride along in. Um, Then you've got to attend the academy. You know, the application period this year, I think in sometime in October, pretty competitive. Um, This is not a a fast rule. This is kind of the way it was last year for me. Each region's allowed two people. Uh, Again, there's always changes to that, whatever. Pick 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 this apart all you want. But uh, generally, it's around two people. So my academy class had 12, 12 folks in it. And uh, so, so pretty competitive, just one class a year. And uh, I followed up after a year of COVID not having it. Now there is two academies. Region one does, I think it's called CASA. And then uh, the, everyone else, much like in fire does, uh, does NASTA and it's national Jesus. I should have wrote that down. I can't think what it stands for, but it's national aerial supervision Academy. I think is how that goes down. So any, yeah, NASA. So anyway, uh, so you, region five kind of has their own. They do allow some outside folks outside of region five, but the majority of it is for region five. So, um, as we both know, we, we've got a mutual friend, John, he, he went through Casa. Yeah. So, um, anyway, Mr. So Freeman, former guest. What's that? John Freeman. Yeah. Yeah. So He's a good dude. super competitive to get in there. Um, so you get into the academy, it's all great. You go out as a trainee is, is where I'm sitting now. The big thing they ask of on the application to get into academy is, you know, will your employer or will your boss support this? Because again, they throw out some really great data at academy. If you don't get it done your first year, like the success rate just plummets. If you, if you don't get it done your second year, I mean, it's like single digit percent of success. Oh, wow. And yeah. So, so it's they, a high washout they, rate. Well, it's not really washout. Not washout, just, but just going back. Yeah. yeah. You know, so here I am plugging away 
And I had like 50 days where I had 10 hours this year. Well, dude, you're, you're not starting over, but you're, you're, you're kind of taking a step back when you get to your next assignment. So imagine taking, you know, you only do two roles in 2022 and then in 2023, you only do a role. You know, it's just like, are you really accomplishing much? Cause it's nothing like a division or a task force or a crew boss trainee position. You need a lot of reps to kind of stay fresh with it. So they ask your bosses, Hey, do you support this? And if you do, I think they require at least a minimum of three assignments a year. They they ask your boss to support. So just to remain that's your current. Big, what's that? Well, just to, just to try to get that training done. Gotcha. So they ask that they ask of you and your, your bosses, Hey man, do you commit to this? Not just the Academy, but now being a trainee, we need you to be out there grinding. If you're an FMO on a busy district and you can't get away, it's probably not the best year to go to the Academy and be an air attack trainer. You know, if you're a jumper and you can, you know, step away for a good chunk of the year, dude, you're going to be successful at this program. Yeah. So that's the big thing with, uh, with getting into the Academy and then becoming a trainee. And then once you are that trainee is this has been hard for me, man, I am not a humble individual at all. Uh, I'm just not. And so it has been humbling, much like being a tanker pilot was. And so the greatest thing about this job is, is again, we've all been trainees. I don't care what the role is all the way down to firefighter one, but you deal with different trainers and they have, Hey, I want you to do it Zach's way. And then I'm done with them. They head over to you and you want them to do it your way. And you almost have to build the rapport with your trainer, maybe even kiss his ass a little bit, you know, to get it done. Dude, an air attack program is not that way. The trainers are all on the same page. The academy, the instructors are all on the same page. You know what you're going to get, basically. Dude, exactly. We have that. I should have had it in front of me. If I didn't know, I'd have been on camera. We have this little book called the SAS. It's, uh, I even wrote it down. Standards for Aerial Supervision. And it's our Bible. With the exception of it being the smallest writing in the world, that thing is next to perfect. And it almost is like, how can we, as a federal agency, come up with this? Because it's we've, we seem to screw everything up. This is next to perfect. <laughs> And then the SAS, it lays out down to the smallest thing to the biggest thing, scripts, everything. So again, you go to a trainer and that trainer's training off the SAS. You go to the academy, it's off the SAS. So it's... So it's actually uniform and it's like... Yes. You know what you're going to get? If we could do that for every other position... Holy shit, SOPs. Wow. Imagine that. This is a concept. (laughs) So you get your, you get all those things done. The last step is you do a check, right? So as we all understand, you, you do your, is you're a trainee, you, you get your final evaluator, you go home, your home unit supports it. You go to your red card committee, you're blessed, good to go. Well, air attack has one extra layer. You have to do a check, ride. It has to be a moderate complexity incident. So kind of the go-to thing is two helicopters, two fixed wing minimum. There's some changes to that. And if you do well in that, they have a certain form. You do well on that. They sign you off. You got your task book finished. You've got your evaluation, your check ride, hand that all into your home unit, go through your red card committee. And you're, uh, you're just dangerous enough to, you know, to, yeah, you're just new enough to be dangerous, however you want to put it. So no enough to just be dangerous. That's there we go. Thank <laughs> you for cleaning that up. I don't know. I'm too, uh, Dos Equis in. So no, that's all right. <laughs> um, so yeah, the Academy, I was just looking at my notes, you know, super solid training, the SAS, I beat that up pretty good. You know, it's a lot of, 
the academy, what makes it expensive is you fly a good chunk, almost half your time you're in an airplane. Uh, you're in there with a, a trainer. You've got a, a an academy bro, basically, a, a buddy. And then the pilot that's flying you. And they go out and they build these fake fires in outside of uh, outside of Mesa, Arizona. And uh, you call in drops with tankers and helicopters. And so by the time you leave the two-week academy, you've seen a lot of mock fires. You're very well prepared for the real thing. When you're not flying sims, you're doing a lot of sand tables. And do this. The Sims are awesome. The sand tables, dude, almost take you to tears. I heard they're like, pretty damn intense. Well, dude, I, was, I was bullshitting with Booker. Booker was up here and uh, we went out for dinner one night and he was saying that, dude, this was like one of the most intense things that he's ever been through. Brutal. Like I went in there like, oh, I've been in the fire traffic area for a couple of years now. I'm going to just crush this. Walk out of there, basically sucking on my thumb, you know, put baby in the corner or whatever, bro. <laughs> Super shitty. Um, so it's, it's, it's awesomely humble. So yeah, you're flying Sims, you're doing sand tables, a lot of lecture, but they break it all up perfectly, man. And just the student to instructor ratio, I, again, this is a shot in the dark, but I bet there's easily four instructors for every student. Damn, that's I mean, just dialed in instructors, man. What's well, uh, going to be a good quality amazing, of learning, right? though? Like a good quality of education. If you have that many instructors per student, that's pretty damn good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's the gist on the pipeline, the academy. Uh, the last couple things is how to communicate with those air attacks. So um, the, the big thing is, is uh, talking less. And I'm looking in what we've been at it like easily an hour, 15, 20 minutes, hour and a half, maybe even. And so I'm definitely not talking less today, but, uh, you know, talk less with those guys. The example I give, you know, is, Hey, you know, air attacks on scene, you know, division Bravo, what can I, you know, strategy or priorities and tactics for the day? What would you like? Well, Hey, I'm over here on the East side. Yeah, down towards the buggies. I'd like to get some mud on the east side. Uh, yeah, a helicopter would be nice. Yeah, we had a helicopter in here yesterday. He did some good work. The tankers are okay, too. Um, yeah, whenever you think, what are your thoughts? Dude, where do I even begin? Like, uh, especially as a trainee, man, I'm, again, the thumb's coming out and it's going in my mouth, bro. It's like, so something, you know, better would be like, hey, you know, division whiskey, left flank. Yeah, I'd like to start getting some mud tied in with a the, division bravo break you know whatever the case is i'd like two helicopters if i could get them to work with flathead alpha that'd be great you know so just keep it to the point less is more um if if i need more from you i'm gonna ask uh say hey you know clarify this and you know especially the trainee man i'm gonna ask a lot more than you know booker's gonna he's he's probably gonna get it pretty easily um the other thing is uh fight fire the same way you do on the you know, we fight fire the same way or I do on the, in the air as I do on the ground, you know, PJ, you know, if the wind ain't blowing on it, it ain't burning really. Right. So going indirect on PJ is probably not going to work the best, you know, so I'm going to go direct on PJ outside of Grand Junction, the same way as we're going to be putting in saw line and putting the dig right on top of it, you know? So again, don't, don't feel like you got to come up with some new fancy idea because you got two B lats showing up on scene, man, just, just tell me what you want. I'm going to work it out with you and we're, we're going to fight some fire, you know? So, yeah. 
Well, it's especially uh, cool when you have like a local resource, like you work in your district and you're tied in and you have a good relationship and a rapport with your air attack, like Scott over here in Reno, uh, Scott Moron. Is he retired now? Is he done or is he still flying? I don't know that name, honestly, huh. dude. Yeah. I know Booker. Um, I've, I've gotten the opportunity to, to fly under Booker. So that's, that's cool. He's um, rad. But I don't know Scott. Yeah. I don't know if uh, Scott's still there or not, or if he's doing his own thing now, but I, we had a, everybody in the district had a great relationship with him. So, and we trusted him too. So we had that yeah. rapport already and, but that's local unit shit. Right. So we just, and we'd give a lot of trust, be like, especially on an emerging incident. It's like, Hey Scott, what do you see from up there? You know, it's like, Oh yeah. Well this thing, and then, you know, division alpha is blowing out and you got to put mud over here. I'm like, cool. Trust you. Go to work. <laughs> Here's the contact sure. for alpha Bravo or alpha Zulu, you know? Yeah. So we, it's different when you have that relationship, uh, that trust level already built. But, you know, I think that, uh, also getting feedback from the eyes in the sky too, that way you get a bigger picture of say, if you're the IC of the incident, like, Hey, what do you see up there? Like getting that conversation out of the way first, like, what are our priorities? What do you see as our priorities? Cause this is what I'm seeing, but keeping it concise. Sure. Yeah. You know, and, um, so yeah, that, that just that good comms with the, with the air attack makes everyone's life easier. Again, less is more. And we'll, we'll, we'll just hit you up if we need some more info from you. But, uh, you know, it's, it's great stuff that the whole program as a whole, we we're always, again, you know, I had a couple of agenda items, you know, we've hit most of them, but the other one is always to pump up that air attack program. Uh, you know, if you've got an interest in it, reach out to the air attacks around you, reach out to your fixed wing ops specialist, um, hit them up. You know, the, the recruitment is, is active. Uh, again, if, if my uh, mentors wouldn't have told me about it or wouldn't hit me up, I would have never pursued it. And so we are always actively, like I've got two or three guys that I'm constantly get that division done, get that division done. And, uh, so we can, we can get you up there. And so if you're interested in it, talk to your folks and, and maybe it's five years out and that's okay because now we can, you know, there's different ways we can help prepare you for that. So if air attack looks cool to you and I promise you it's a killer job and, and my little, little tiny world of experience with it, I love every minute of it. So. Nice. So yeah. here's a question for you, man, about, as far as like pilots and air attacks, is there a, like pretty much a shortage of pilots and air attacks out there in general across the nation? So air, air attacks are super short. We, we talk about this all the time. You know, uh, a lot of us still have a, for me, this year has been hard, man. You know, I'm on my eighth roll or seventh, whatever it is. Got another one coming up. I miss being on the ground a lot. Um, and it's really hard on me. And you know, to go out as a division or a task force or even a heavy equipment boss or a crew boss, you know, it's, it's going to be tough to do that because there is such a need for an air attack. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been on a couple teams. I love the team atmosphere and go, you know, as soon as the team finds out you're, you know, Hey, I'm coming out as a division. And then they find out they've got a UTF to fill for an air attack. Guess what, dude, they're going to make life pretty uncomfortable till you get in that platform and be an air attack for them, you know? So there's a huge shortage as far as air attack pilots. There's, you know, I don't think there's a shortage. It's, um, yeah, I don't feel there's a shortage of the pilots. It just, um, they may not, sub, dude, there's life for air attack pilots and they're nothing short of amazing. But I would say, you know, three to five years, they're, they're moving on to something else, whether it be in fire or not, they're, they're moving on to something else. So. Copy that. Well, we were talking about like earlier in the beginning of this episode, we were talking about like, you know, not 
believing in coincidence and just like following your heart. And like, if there's a change that presents itself, there's plenty of other opportunities in the aviation world too. And I think there's some ones that are really like not talked about, like being an A and P you could still be on a fire crew and still be an aviation mechanic. Like, sure. of, like tied in with, you know, some of these contract uh, companies sure. that are flying the ships. So if you're interested, so yeah, I think man, it's solid work, Brandon. Um, yeah. A couple things to consider is so dude, you know, getting to spend time on tanker bases as whatever role I've been in, you know, there's a whole avenue of different quals there. You know, there's parking tenders, there's, uh, seat base managers, there's Rank tanker manager, base managers, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. There's, you know, abros there's, there's all these different roles that are not, not non-operational, which are great roles. You know, you can still get out and, and get some overtime, you know, get some per diem, things like that. It, great roles out there in aviation that, that don't require you to, to spend a bunch, bunch of money at BNA and peer to get a pilot's license. If you're that guy on the ground and you say, Hey man, I want to get into fire aviation and I want to fly. There's a couple of avenues. And again, this is where I'll, I'll deter folks from becoming a seat pilot. And it's just because of that ag, that ag thing is such a hurdle. And Brandon, if you called me today and I've got a couple in the pipeline right now that are like, I really want to fly seats and their heart is set on it. I'll help put them in touch with some ag guys, but they need to know Fire is probably going to become a distant memory because somehow the landing lotto ticket ended up on my lap. I don't know why it did, but that don't happen. So you're going to have to put fire on hold. You know, there's, a, I don't want to say his name just because I don't know if it's okay, but there's a lead plane pilot out there for the BLM. And that dude went and flew ag for a year. And uh, he had to, to grind out. He had to put fire on hold to make all this happen. And if that's okay, if you're good with it, I wasn't. So Moving past that though, so hey, I want to fly. Air attacking will always usually be the first recommendation. Go be an air attack pilot. You are going to be, if you understand fire, you're going to be a great asset to that air attack sitting next to you. If you want to fight fire, oh, sorry, let me go back to that air attack pilot. The large air tanker program, there is a shortage of large air tanker pilots right now. I was just, just about to ask you this. <laughs> What's that? This is going to be my next question. So take it away. <laughs> yeah. Large air tanker. There is a shortage because dude, there's a massive shortage for pilots in general right now. Oh, yeah. So, Hey, I can be gone all summer and fly a large air tanker. I can go fly for Delta and make, you know, the same amount of money and have a cush schedule with all this benefits. So we're hurting for large air tanker pilots. And I would feel confident in saying a large portion of those pilots have been pulled from uh, air attack pilots and definitely have been done so in the last couple of years. So again, I feel like being a large air tanker pilot is much more attainable than being a sea pilot. Uh, and, and again, I would recommend, Hey, go fly an air attack airplane, make the jump over and fly lats, make a lot more money than a sea pilot, be a lot busier. Um, go work for Ericsson fly, flying an MD. What are those MD 58s? Yeah. 87. Yeah. 87. That's what it is. Yep. And then the other option is the lead plane. So there's two lead plane programs, the forest service and the BLM. And this will easily be, you can shoot holes in this. No problem. Cause I, I'm not a subject matter expert on any of this shit, but really not this. But so the BLM program, there is always the exception, but for the most part, only hires division qualified air attacks to fly lead planes. So if you get a BLM, yeah, no shit, BLM, really? Yes, you get a BLM lead plane. 
Um, they're going to be, you, they're almost exclusively going to be air attack qualified. And so these dudes usually, not usually come from the ground up. The majority of them all come from jumper ranks. The jumpers have a, a, a serious lockdown on this program. Uh, they're not the only ones, but for the most part, the jumpers have done great in growing this program. So dude, you get a, uh, you get a lead playing from the BLM and them dudes are dialed. Forest service doesn't require that. So again, we're training. One of the biggest hurdles is we're training aviators to be firefighters. And again, a whole podcast can be done on this by people much more versed than me. And if you ever want to do it, I'll give you some names to reach out to, but the forest service leads are still super dialed. It just takes a little while longer to get up there. Um, now, on to what it means for the folks listening is if you say, hey, I want to fly a lead and I'm here to tell you, those dudes are, they get it done. And if you want to just be nonstop action, that's the role for you. Be those guys, pilot. from the minute they show up on a fire to the minute they leave are working and they're working. They're handling the same radios I'm handling in an air attack and they're flying an airplane and they are amazing to watch. Super attainable. So the BLM has a program that if you're division qualified, and again, I'm going to screw this up, but I believe if you're division qualified, you've got 500 hours of total time, they'll train you the rest of the way. They'll help you get the rest of your endorsements, uh, licenses, qualifications. Uh, You know, it's a great program. The Forest Service is trying. They've got a new person in the role. They're trying to build a similar type program. So if you have any interest at all in being a lead plane pilot, uh, reach out to your those same folks I named off, your fixing ops specialists, other lead planes, even your air attacks. They'll put you in contact. Call me. I'll give you the phone numbers of the, the folks to reach out to. But that is a baller job, dude. That would so, be freaking awesome, man. Because it's like, yeah. it, like, a, a, like a lead plane. I mean, it's like a combination between a seat and an air attack. That's pretty bitching. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're in it there. The airplanes are, are stellar. The people you're training under are amazing. It, the whole program is, is again, very similar to, to perfect in my eyes. So yeah, a lot of options out there. Um, you know, again, at the end of this, man, I'm more than happy to put my info out there. I'm, I'm always good to answer questions. Uh, and, and if I don't know the answer, I'll, I'll try nudging you in the direction of a, a someone that does. So um yeah are you good for a couple a little bit more or should yeah we, uh, dude should we call it? Yeah. i got all night bro i got all night cool man uh yeah i travel home tomorrow so uh and somehow i got luck lucked out that united bumped me to first class i'll just sleep the whole way home in the morning there you so, go just a little uh yeah so pre-board whiskey to, or pre-flight whiskey yeah. <laughs> call yeah. it a night well, yeah so i wanted to put this out there you know um on some stressors. Uh, so we're all tired, you know, we're all overworked. We're, we're all going through the same thing. Uh, you've, you've talked about it a lot on your, your different shows. It's in the industry. It's on wildfire today, all that shit. So I wanted to put that in perspective for the aviation folks is, you know, that dude that I worked with in Ontario, that seat pilot, he started in March in Minnesota. And I think his contract ends mid September. They'll probably extend him. I would assume a couple weeks into October. So that guy has gone from March till October. And I think when I saw him, you know, a month ago, he was at 13 hours of flight time, which is, you know, pretty weak sauce, honestly. That's minuscule. It's like nothing. 
Yeah. Those so like that point dude to point, has, like pretty much fairy flights almost. Yeah. That dude has streamed everything probably on Netflix and Amazon and HBO, you know, combined. He's, he's watching had a reruns, long reruns of like Game of Thrones, basically. Yeah. He's taxed, Brandon. And um, so we're tired. We get that. Those aviators, they're tired too, you know. Uh, the air attacks are, are smoked as well. You know, even though we're not flying, we're, we're still sitting at a base. And a guy may think, well, dude, that's awesome. I'd love to sit at a base with AC and an iPad and watch videos or work out. Um, I'm here to tell you, man, it, it, it's not fun. Dude, it, there's nothing more dangerous than a bored hotshot, man. I, I'll stand by that. <laughs> yes. There's nothing more dangerous than that. Or bored yes. brain for that matter. Um, You know... And, and that's, you know, that put me into a, a thing where as ground firefighters too, you know, we're on the struggle bus with all these dudes and I was at a briefing, you know, and, and I'm probably going to offend someone and that's all right. Cause I, I'm not hitting any of your big threes, but it's cool. So, uh, I'm at a briefing and the HR guy gets up there and, and we've all been through those briefings, you know, where you're like, is this ever going to end? I just want to get to my breakout and, you know, get the, get in the dirt. And this dude gets up there and he's like, you know, it's the end of a long season and uh, we're heading home. Some of us, you're going to get home and, uh, you know, remember, you know, feel the room, ease in gentle. And I don't, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember how he put it. Why doesn't this dude it, feel the room? There's, yeah, <laughs> there's people like plenty of hours left on their season in that, in that briefing. Yeah. And, and, but it, it resonated with me. So I, I get home and, and now, you know, here I am, you know, hundred and some odd days on the road. And I'll get home tomorrow and, you know, I'm a bit of a cuddler. Yeah, I like cuddling with my wife and, and I'll get home. And that first night, sometimes she's like, need a little room, bro, because you're scruffly and I'm not used to that. And uh, I just need, you know, we need to ease into this. And, and so I think about what that guy says all the time about how I come home. And, and I think I heard one of your guests talking about, you know, changing stuff around or cleaning this or cleaning that. And I give my wife a wide berth when I first come home. You know, I don't, I don't try to solve problems when I'm on the road. I don't try to fix things when I get home that she should have done better. And, you know, we pass that on to, a, to our pilots at the co-fire side, the air attack pilots. We talk about that in the airplane. As ground guys, we try to acknowledge that because, dude, if you're like me, man, you know, I love being at home and the wife is the queen and, and I want to keep her happy because she's patient enough with me. And I always try to, to push that out there as much as I can is, is ease into that when you're going home and, and give those, you know, give those significant others a little room to, to get used to you being back. You know, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But. Oh, hundred percent, man. And, uh, Minda O's, Dr. Minda O's, she's a previous guest on mine of mine. And, uh, she always talks about the uh, work brain and how hard that is to turn off because I mean, every firefighter out there, you know, even pilots, they're all go-getter type A personalities. And the first thing they do when they, when they come home is try and like fix things. It's like, you can't turn off that work brain of being a professional problem solver for the last eight months. And every time you come home, you try and be a professional problem solver. That shit don't fly. Right. Yeah. Like you're and saying, it resonate, you know, the more tired we get, the more spread thin we get. And it's aviation and on the ground, the more accidents we can expect to happen. So we all try to mitigate that as much as possible, whether those, you know, it's when we get home and, you know, I want to jump right on, you know, and go for a long run. You know, I don't want to twist my ankle because I'm excited to be home and finally get a good chance to get a good workout in or, or whatever. And, and when we're on the fire, same thing, you know, try to mitigate the chances of the accidents. Cause 
I pulled up some stuff I wanted to wrap on is in 2020, you know, we had two pilots that had a midair collision in Eastern Nevada, yep. you know, and, uh, that was no joke. And then follow that up shortly thereafter, you know, we had one pilot in Idaho that went down and crashed due to there's various theories on that, but basically the gate didn't open for whatever reason, you know? And so in 2020, we lost three seat pilots, which that's a big number that's for, for seat pilots. That's a know? pretty and, high uh, per capita loss. There's not a lot of tanker uh, seat pilots out there. That's a lot. No. Yeah. And, you know, and then this year alone, you know, the unfortunate accident of the, the Chinook going down, I, I believe is what it was. And the firefighters with the snags and, and then the folks that didn't have a fatality, but down on cow cat or calf Canyon. Yes. Thank you. I was like for a couple of weeks, you think I know, but yeah, you know, dropped on, on those folks and, and took them out with some rocks and stuff. So we, we got it. I mean, we all know it's dangerous, but for me, I forget it sometimes. And, uh, last year, you know, we lost a pilot with co-fire and it was our first one we lost. And dude, um, you know, I was very involved in that and very involved in that program. And that, and that was the one thing that when you and I chatted that I wanted to make sure I got to touch on because, you know, it's fun. We laugh, joke. I get a chance to to do humble brags about Zach. But in all reality, man, I've always been a pusher. I, I like to just go, go, go. And it's always worked out well. Well, dude, you know, last year, that pushing, I don't know how well, uh, patience, I think would have been a good thing. Um, And so for folks out there that have similar traits to me, you know, that go, 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 nonstop, do whatever it takes, you know, even down to the the story we laughed about with lying to get in with Kyle, you know, or, or whatever, bending the truth, you know, there's, there's repercussions to our actions, you know, and, um, you know, with, with Mark, um, Mark Olson was the pilot we lost, you know, he had a call sign of Thor. He was a big, uh, air force guy. You know, he came to us, or he was one of the first pilots for co-fire. He, he, the guy had like 7,000, I don't know, it might've been, he had thousands of hours of operating under night vision goggles. Oh, wow. Uh, he was, he was a pipe hitter in the A-10 world, uh, numerous deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq. And this guy was nothing short of amazing. And he, uh, he saw that, Hey, why don't we fly at night with tankers? And, uh, you know, there's going to be folks that listen to this and I, and, and think that was the dumbest thing ever. And, and that's okay. I fielded these calls. Uh, or I fielded these conversations, but Mark believed in it. And because of my, whatever, I don't know why I got chosen for it, but he and I started to, to, to double team up on this. And this is the part where I get into, this is not flattering about Zach. We can laugh about that story about me going to Kyle, but this is not a, a laughing matter for me, but Mark talked, you know, Hey, let's, I really want to see this happen. So co-fire has got a contract with ODF. It's a state contract. And he said, Hey, let's go to these guys and let's talk to them about flying tankers at night. And so he did, the company did, and ODS said, we're interested. And the federal government said five to 10 years before we're interested. And California has been doing this since I believe 1989 was the first time they ever worked helicopters at night. Yeah. They had an unfortunate well, accident. Like, LA, County, LA County uh, air ops. Yeah. They do night. Yep. Yeah. So they were successful at it. And unfortunately they had an accident and they lost a, 
I believe just one pilot and pushed their program back, but they persevered. And now I, I, I feel that program is extremely successful and it's going to do nothing but grow. Um, so we learned that, and I've spent a lot of time talking to those guys and their, their successes are because we were at a County and a state level, the feds, things just move slower. So ODF was on board. We, uh, we brought in uh, folks uh, last year, last spring. I brought in a lot of cooperators in Colorado who put on a big show and tell, did like 15 drops, structure protection, line building. It was all awesome. You know, everyone was on board. And um, this is where the unflattering part gets in, man, um, is it was moving at a pace that I wasn't comfortable with. Um, and I decided that, Hey, I, I really think that we should continue to, to really push this to happen and didn't push it to happen, but, um, you know, really continued to communicate with the stakeholders. And, uh, one of my first bosses ever, he's like, dude, I, I believe in this. I think it'd be nice to be able to put in a couple loads at night before, uh, you know, past pumpkin. So we don't have such a mess to deal with in the morning. I'd love to be able to, you know, at Cameron Peak, we lost a lot of homes. And he's like, I'd love to be able to put a little mud around those homes at night, maybe save them. So he believed in it. I believed in it. Mark, the pilot, really believed in it. And we uh, we got a contract. And uh, November, uh, into November last year, we got a call for a fire at uh, about nine in the morning in Estes Park, um, where I, I cut my teeth as a new guy. Uh, my wife's a superintendent at the school district. It's, it's in our backyard. There's a valiant effort. Um, and we spent the entire day talking about it. You know, here's the weather, here's the fire, here's what we're going to do. Uh, a lot of risk assessments, a lot of communication. Um, the, the night started to come, Mark went up and flew it. Uh, when it was still daylight, the winds were still pretty rough. It was great. He came back and landed. I uh, had some media interviews set up. He and I did some interviews. The winds were just steady dropping off uh, as they do. We all know that at night, they, they really usually drop off. He took off. I, well, I walked up on the, the step. I punched him in the arm, told him not to fuck this up because everybody was watching, shut the door. Uh, before I shut the door, this guy, man, he was awesome. He said, don't fuck up climbing off the steps. Everybody's watching the media is all there with their cameras, you know, and, uh, you know, Mark was a, an amazing dude. Um, he, uh, he always said, Zach, you only get so many heartbeats in life. So why would I want to be in a hurry to get anywhere? Because I'm just going to use up those heartbeats. This dude moved at a snail's pace everywhere he went. And, uh, I, you know, I'm always in a hurry moving all fast. So we'd always have this little banter. And, um, so he, uh, he takes off and, uh, I go to climb in an airplane to go up overhead and watch him. And uh, left engine starts up in the airplane. And I look down at my phone and the, the individual that's the emergency manager for that comp or for that county calls me up. I see his number popping up the same way I have many a times in 18 years. And uh, he says, uh, we think Mark crashed. Oh, shit. And uh, I'll be honest with you, man. Every time I see that number, that name pop up on my phone, it'll never look the same, right? Um, you go through that and you, it changes you. And again, throughout this, I'm going to say the same thing as remember our actions have repercussions. And, um, 
you know, so I instantly jump out of it. He's like, I need you to come up to the ICP right now. We don't know where he crashed. We don't even know if we did, but we think we heard him. We heard a thud. So I drive up first. I call the owners of the company. I need you to get up to the ICP. I'm headed up there now. I'm going to beat you guys up there. I'll see you when you get there. Um, I drive like a complete idiot. One of the worst things I've ever done. Thank God I didn't cause an accident or kill anyone, but drive up there, get up there. They're still looking for him. Uh, the individual that hired us tools up, gets out there, and he actually somehow miraculously is the one that finds the accident. And radio's back that Mark had passed. Um, he had crashed. And so he was, uh, he was talking to the folks on the ground and uh, getting lined out on the drop. And he said the winds were still a little high. And he said, I'm going to make one last pass. And we'll never know what that means, Brandon. We'll never know what one last pass means. If I'm going to come in and do the drop, if I'm going to just get one more last pass, and then I'm going to go back to the airport and jettison the load. Because we knew at midnight that night, the winds completely stopped. They were just, you know, all the forecasts that they do, they went from like 15 to nothing. And we have parameters to seat pilots when and when we can't fly. And he was well within those parameters. But we just will never know what that one last pass meant. <clears throat> and he uh, he crashed and uh, and passed away. And so, again, I tell this story, man, because maybe maybe the Fed's saying five or ten years is the right move, you know, because patience is is can be a good thing. Let's let's really get in the weeds on this and make sure this is the right implementation. Make sure this is the we need to change the parameters. What does this look like, you know? Um, We'll never, I'll never know those answers, um, but I'll know that I believed in the mission. Mark believed in the mission. The customer believed in the mission. I still believe in the mission. I still believe it's super viable. I know for Zachary Sullivan, I'll never be able to put a guy in an airplane at night and tell him, you know, don't screw this up in a joking manner or good luck or whatever that would be. That's not in my wheelhouse anymore. Um, that, you know, I'll always support it, but I, I can't ever do that. And um, if we're good, you know, just a couple other things to put on that is to finish out that story so folks know how it went because it was all over social media and all that. And I think it's important to know the whole story about Mark. But so we decided that morning. Uh, so, excuse me. So the accident happened at night. The owners made it up. We, we stayed up there until they found him. And Bud, bro, it was extremely rocky country. There was retardant everywhere. And it, they, they said, we, we can't get him out tonight. It, it, you know, it's like 1230. And before I could even say it, um, because remember the owners of Co-Fire, they're, they're, they're crop sprayers that have made a very amazing company, but they're not like you and I, Brandon. They don't understand what, what this job is like. And we, we don't leave anyone behind. And so before I could even pipe up, the, uh, the customer said, Zach, um, we're leaving folks with them throughout the night. And so that's the first thing that I want folks to remember is that as firefighters, man, we need to be there for each other, no matter what, as safely as possible. And uh, so they left two folks up there with them, not freezing. They, they were at the trailhead, which was about a half mile. They stayed at the trailhead and um, that it got chilly that night. So that was about the best we could do without someone freezing. And, and uh, we appreciated that. So they left folks with them over the night. We decided to go home, go our separate ways because 
the company has to go back to the base and deal with everything that's going to come from this insurance, phone calls, social media, just everything, all that stuff. Yeah. Next to kin, all that. Right. And so we had a division of labor. So they said, look, we're headed back home to the company. We're going to handle all that. Zach, we don't even know what to do here. Can you stay here and work on getting them down? And what does that look like? So we all, uh, you know, I, I honestly, surprisingly enough, I slept about an hour and a half that night. I, I still, I don't know if that's okay to sleep, but I did. Woke up the next morning, drove back up to ICP and, and Brandon, this is where it's, I'm, I'm going to hang in there, bro. But I, I get up there. There's my, my other family. So I've cut my teeth for 18 years in this area. And there's people from feds, cooperators, county agencies, and they're all there. And I, and I know a ton of them. And some dudes could look at me in the eyes and some dudes couldn't. Some dudes came up and hugged and shook my hand. Some didn't. Um, some said, I'm sorry. And some didn't. And, and it doesn't matter what they did because it's all okay. Because you and I have probably been on the receiving end of that in some form or fashion in our careers. And that is a tough situation to be in. So I hold no resentment on anyone on how they handle that. But dude, the, the, everyone was amazing. And I, I get with the, the customer and it's like, okay, we're going to move his body down. What does that look like? Where are we taking him? Well, he's going to the corners off. And, uh, okay, well, and Zach, we're going to get you up there to him. Okay. So I don't know what to do here now. I, I don't know where to go, Brandon. So this is point number two about being there for our folks. So there's a guy at, He's got a big GS, fantastic job now. So I don't want to throw his name out. He's over there in Reno. And uh, he was an honor guard for a long time. Solid, solid fireman. He's making our programs much better at the level he's at. Uh, I call him up, man. He's been a big mentor. And I said, you know, Jeremy, I don't know what to do here. And uh, stand by. I got you, man. Uh, I'm going to hang up. Let me get you some answers here pretty quick. Dude, I'm not bullshitting you inside of like five minutes. My phone's blowing up from Fallen Firefighters Foundation, Honor Guard folks, um, reaching out saying, hey, Zach, man, we're going to uh, we're gonna get some folks up there to help get his body down and then more to come. And uh, this is where it really starts to come together is, is uh, next thing I know, Jeremy... Jeremy shows up or he calls me. Sorry, man. I'm just trying to sort through some shit here. So he calls and he's like, Hey man, I'll see you in a few hours. What do you mean in a few hours? Yeah. Inbound man. I'll see you in a bit. So Jeremy, uh, tools up man. And, and, uh, from Reno to, to Loveland, he's there inside of, you know, just a handful of hours. And, uh, he shows up, the, the next morning and he, he's got a, another, uh, uh, fixed wing. Uh, he's got another person in aviation that I, I didn't know very well. And she's with them and they didn't leave my side for six days. Basically they only left their side when left my side when I asked them to, and dude, they were there and they're helping me handle everything. Dude. It doesn't matter if you're a contractor, if you're a fed, if you're a cooperator, um, we have to be there for our brothers and sisters. And they were, and as far as I am concerned, they, they broke the mold after a man because they were, they were there for a vendor. 
um, for a non a guy who had never had boots on the ground as a firefighter. And they were there for us, for the company. They were there for the family. And for me, so we, uh, back to bringing him out, they, they litter his body down. Uh, they wouldn't let me go in. I'm at the trailhead. And as soon as they were on stable ground, they're, they're getting a flag over Mark. And, uh, because, you know, this is a warrior, uh, that has, has seen combat and has helped the trigger pullers on the ground. He was a, an aviator for us on the, on the ground fighting fire, you know, so this dude's whole life is serving his country. They had a flag over him instantly. We get him in the back of the corners truck. And, uh, one of the guys says, Zach, man, I'm going to drive you down. And, And that was a good decision on his part. We tuck in behind him. We've got about a two mile drive down the trailhead or down the road to the highway. We get down there, Brandon, and there sits like 12 agency cooperator vehicles lined up. Dude, this is in like an hour and a half in the, the rural mountains of Colorado. And they managed to pull all these people together in such a short time. And I don't even know how they could do that. So we start making the progression to Fort Collins. And uh, we get, we're on our way down, man. And, and the fire station that I first showed up at 18 years previous to look for that part-time job, there's the first group of responders kegged up, saluting, standing there, civilians mixed in with them. And that continued on all the way through Loveland, Fort Collins to the coroner's office. We get to the coroner's office and there's an impromptu color guard there. And they, they carry his body in. And, and again, you know, we've been a part of these probably in some form or fashion, but that's usually, you know, days ahead of time. And they put this together in just a couple of hours, you know? And so that's that, that's what we've signed up for. Not just to, to get in on a dig, but we signed up there to be there for our brothers and sisters. Oh, hundred percent, dude. Yeah. And I witnessed it that day. And, uh, throughout that week, it continued, man, just the fallen firefighters foundation was right there, man, to organize because now it's time to do the big progression from the coroner's office to Fort Morgan, where he was going to be cremated. And that's roughly, I want to say like 78 miles or something. And so that it's a massive thing. And now I definitely can't handle this, you know, um, the company definitely, they don't know how, you know, when the company got to, to experience this, they didn't know what to think. Mechanics, pilots, owners, office administrators, they'd never seen anything like this, maybe on the news or, you know, for a vet that has passed. But to, it was one of their own, one of their family to see them honored like this. It blew them away. And that whole procession, myself and another pilot, we flew over watching two tankers and circled the entire procession for almost three hours. And I probably should have never climbed in that airplane, um, but I, I did. And, and we followed that and, and watching it from the air, there was never a, you know, truckers pulled over on the side of the road, standing on their steps. And they honored a, a great man who sacrificed everything for, for a job that, you know, we all love and has brought us happiness and, and a lot of great things. And it doesn't matter if you believe in that mission or not, because he did, and it was fighting fire, and, and we we honored him, and and the citizens really did. And I know I'm rambling on this man, but 
it's uh it's pretty it was an amazing thing to be a part of and to see those folks come over uh to be there with me and and then be with the company you know we signed up for that in my, in my eyes and i always support unfortunately we, we probably have more of these to come and i will always push aside the next assignment the next vacation to be there to to play a role in that cuz to me that's more important than almost being in on a dig or being on that saw or dropping a load of retardant is being there for those fallen brothers and sisters. And that's the big thing I wanted to put out there to you is, is those folks came to us to help us and, and they did a great job. And we know we need this to remember that. And the other thing is to remember that our actions have those consequences. And, you know, I, I carry a lot of guilt because I connected those dots. And I talked about that connecting the dots, the luck and how it's all worked out for me. Well, now I, I feel like connecting those dots, my life, almost most of my adult life has been to help others. And I feel like maybe I might've not helped this individual because I, I really wanted to see this be successful. You know, we, that night that he passed, we thought the next day there would be a new tool in the toolbox and we would have helped change this profession for the better. And I'm still confident we'll see this technology in play inside of five years. Um, but we have definitely hurt the program a little bit because of this. And when Mark died that night, it had nothing to do with night vision goggles. It had nothing to do with the night operation. It had to do with, with, with mountain rotor winds. Um, he, he spun stalled into the ground. Uh, and that's what happened. And that just came because of the winds. And, but people will always think, you know, it's because it was a night mission and, and that, you know, thanks, man. Yeah. I, I There's, see no the head nod. There's no way. I mean, I, I get it, dude. Uh, this is actually kind of like getting at me too. Cause my grandfather, the way he passed was from wake vortices, uh, from an undisclosed traffic behind him. And, uh, I, I understand that, you know, these things it's, it's, it's a risk that, uh, we take as aviators and as firefighters, there's those things that happen, man. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that it happens, but un at the same time, you know, it's, uh, one of those things that can happen, you know? Right. You know, and the, the last thing to put a, a point on it is, you know, man, I guess I just really wanted everyone to think about that. You know, when I'm in an air attack now, or I'm in a tanker, I think about this and I think, I know it seems crazy to really do it, but I always try to think what's the repercussions of my actions here. And I may not think about that for every tanker drop. I may not think about that for every single tree I cut down or whatever decision I make is whatever role I'm in, but I really focus on it numerous times. And I have a little note written on my kneeboard that I see all the time when I'm air attacking. It says, remember Mark. And it's not remember him as the hero that he was in my eyes, but it's to remember that my decisions have repercussions. And so Zach, remember when you're calling this tanker in, is this necessary? Is this going to do, is this going to accomplish what we want it to? Because remember you're that pilot, that exposure you're putting him in, your decision, your actions can cause him to either go home to his family or not. And on that night, my decisions to connect those dots, doesn't matter what anyone tells me, played a factor in him not being with us today. And I will never, ever, ever let that happen again without a conscious effort. And so I ask the folks that are listening to remember that whatever, if you're that firefighter two on the crew or an engine, or you're that firefighter one, or you're that squatty, whatever that role is, remember that man, dude, 
your actions have repercussions and they can be deadly. And so I just, that's, that's the big thing I wanted to put out there. And I know that was a long drawn out story and I apologize for that, but I think it's important that we all kind of reflect on that. So. No, it is important that we reflect on that, man, because it is, it, it, we get into this trap as uh, risk takers, professional problem solving risk takers, right? We get into this trap to where we normalize risk. It's, it happens all the time. It happens to everybody, man. And bringing it back to the funeral procession and the honor guard and all that stuff, man. Yeah. It seems like it's a very foreign thing, but, uh, it really makes you think about your actions. Like you're saying, especially if you're hearing a story from when this, I guess this funeral procession and this honor guard is kind of a foreign, far away subject, but when it's in your, in your face, it's very fucking real. So I think that your story about Mark here definitely should drive home the importance of, you know, realizing what your actions, every action on the fire grounds, it always has consequences always. Yeah. So, you know, that was the big thing, how I kind of wanted to wrap it up with you, man. And I'm good with, with chatting more. That's, that's kind of finally, I think you're going to get me to shut up unless you ask for more for me, but you know, you, you said it best. I don't need to repeat it, but that's, that's important to remember as leaders, you know, their, their lives are in our hands in some form or fashion, you know? So, Oh yeah. But it's best job real. in the world, man. Uh, just dangerous as fuck. <laughs> See, there's that adrenaline junkie part. <laughs> it's that's all of us <laughs> though. Oh man. Well, man. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess we can end it on that. Um, but before we go, um, one, I, I want to say thank you for being on the show. And it's not very often that you hear about a person who's been, the ground pounder worked his way up and got all these quals, became a paramedic. Then he became a pilot. Then he became an air attack. It's, it's pretty, pretty impressive, man. That's uh, a very unique story. And I just want to say thank you for sharing that experience and giving some little nuggets of gold to those folks listening to get into the same shoes that you are hopefully, or something alternative, you know, alternate cool. to that path. Right on, but before yeah, we go, hopefully it helps the, hopefully it helps the next generation coming up. That's, you know, I, I love, you know, I love talking about fire and aviation, but that's the big thing, man, is hoping those dudes coming up are like, cool. I, I know, I know who to call and reach out to for some questions or whatever. So, you know what I wish they would do, man. I wish like all the, uh, contracting agency or the contractors out there, all the pilots and, or the, uh, aviation contractors out there that are flying these ships and have these inventory of ships, these fleets. I wish they'd all just like band together and just like create like a trust fund for like a scholarship or something like that to get pilots in seats, man. That'd be fucking bitching, but that's probably a long <laughs> shot. <laughs> you never, actually, that's not the worst thing ever. I mean, we actively are trying on the co-fire side, trying to look for ground firefighters that want to do this. Um, and, uh, just cause it's, you know, I, I don't know, they got the bottom of the barrel with me, but it's, it's worked out pretty good. So they would like to see more of that. Um, unfortunately, like I said, it's, it's pretty tough, but ground fires getting into lats, I think is very, very feasible. There so, we go. And definitely lead planes. That's even better. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like way awesome. That sounds like super fun. <laughs> but uh, before we go, okay. man, I uh, always give the opportunity to give a shout out for you to give a shout out to some homies, heroes, mentors. Who do you got for us? Oh, uh, you know, obviously, I, you know, I think it's going to have to always be the, my wife, you know, first and foremost, you know, she's been awesome. Super, super patient with me, you know, all these little journeys I take are uh, not without 
a lot of time and effort. And she just, she's cool, man. She just hangs back, supports it. And, uh, every once in a while throws the flag and says, uh, I need you to take a roll off or whatever. So, you know, that's, uh, that's been awesome. You know, on the tanker side, the co-fire folks, the, the owner, Kyle Scott, you know, he's one of my best friends and took a chance, you know, and it's worked out great for, for both parties. And so, uh, yeah, I always love him for that. The, the whole team at co-fire again, you know, a killer maintenance program, killer training program, killer safety program. Those are all dudes that take those roles on for what I would feel is a very low reward. So the, the co-fire team super dialed. And then, you know, getting into the air attack side, you know, that's a journey I never, ever thought I would make. Uh, and I still do not think I should be sitting in that seat of that airplane doing it. Uh, there's much better people than me to be doing it. But you know, again, Isaac, I, I shared his name, you know, my mentor for years, you know, I owe all, all of it to him, you know, uh, our, our fixed wing specialist in the region, you know, all of those folks, uh, without them, I wouldn't be here. You know, they got me into the Academy. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, a lot of local EU guys, John Freeman's one. I know I can throw his name out there, but those dudes, I owe it all to those guys. So, uh, yeah, I would say that's a long list and it could always be longer, but yeah, man. Oh yeah, man. Well, Zach, thank you so much for being on the show, man. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch you on the next one, dude. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and are we good? I'll give you my contact at the end. You can throw it in the notes or is that yeah. the best way to do it? Read it over. I would recommend putting it in the show notes because the last person that gave their phone number out on this show, they had to change their number. So. Okay. <laughs> Noted. Noted. I dig it, bro. Yeah. saving you from yourself here. <laughs> cool. Thanks, man. Oh man. Well, once again, dude, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Right on Brandon. Thanks dude for having me. Anytime. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there we go. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with my good friend, Zach Sullivan. Zach, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, sharing your experience. And uh, yeah, it's pretty damn unique that you've done all these things. Like all the way from the ground level, all the way to the eyes in the sky, and you've even flown these planes, these seats, <laughs> on, on active wildfires, man. It's pretty awesome, and uh, I think that that's uh, a unique perspective of fire uh, that should be shared. And thank you for sharing your tips and tricks on how to get into that path. So for all those aviators out there, take some notes, and uh, I'll definitely drop Zach's contact information in the show notes. So be on the lookout for that if you have any questions. Other than that, uh, hey, man, I want to, once again, I want to thank you for uh, sharing your own stories with uh, your mental health experience. I know that's a big thing and, you know, it's going to the tail end of the season. So I know a lot of people out there, uh, they're looking towards the uh, glide path to uh, the end of the season. So uh, just keep in mind that you've got friends out there and you've got resources available. And uh, if you uh, need anything, don't hesitate to hit up your friends, hit up me. Hit up uh, the Wildland Firefighter Foundation and we'll get you pointed in the right direction. As for that, hope everybody's doing well. Yeah, this might be a long summer, so buckle up. Yeah, it might be going well into the fall, maybe into November or December. We'll see, though. We'll see. Other than that, special shout out to our sponsors. We've got Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. You can go to their website at www.mysteryranch.com and check out the Backbone series while you're at it. Also, check out those two packs that I was mentioning earlier. We've got the ass movement. Oh yeah, purveyors of the finest poo-bearing propaganda on the damn planet. So go over to 
thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement and use that code that I mentioned earlier. We've got Hotshot Brewery, kick-ass coffee for kick-ass cause. Go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check out all of your coffee morning essentials and Wildland Firefighter themed apparel. And last but not least, they're not really a sponsor, but they are a cause that I believe in greatly. We've got Bethany over at the Smoky Generation. So go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check out all that she has to offer, including those Smoky Generation grant <laughs> those Smoky Generation grant recipients for 2022. Congratulations to you all. With that, y'all know the drill. Be safe. Stay savage. Peace.